Hello again, everybody, and welcome into another edition of Political Beats, a presentation of National Review. Remember, subscribe to our feed. New episodes on Mondays, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, or right there at nationalreview.com. Click on podcasts in the upper left-hand corner. You'll find a whole bunch of National Review podcasts, including Political Beats, all our old episodes, and the brand new ones on Monday mornings. Uh, Listen, uh, enjoy, and also leave reviews, feedback as well. Uh, My name is Scott Bertram. You can find me on Twitter at Scott Bertram. And as he is each and every week standing by right next to me, uh, theoretically, is Jeff Blair. Jeff, how are you? Uh, Scott, I'm uh, currently having trouble hearing you. I'm I'm climbing the lighting rig on the side of the stage. I am uh, I am now swinging from the rafters. They, they don't seem to have been bolted in that well. Oh, ah! <laughs> oh. Are you okay? I'm all right. I'm all right. I am okay. Excellent. Get better soon. We have a show to do here. Uh, you can find him on Twitter at EsotericCD. And our guest this week, you can find him on Twitter at NumbersMuncher. Uh, he is a marketing research consultant who also has written for National Review and Forbes about political polling during election season, most prominently back in uh, 2012, actually. And uh, again, on Twitter at NumbersMuncher, he is Josh Jordan. Josh, thank you for joining Political Beats. Thanks for having me. This is going to be a lot of fun. Well, we certainly hope so. That's the plan. Uh, We start each uh, show by asking our guests, um, what is your political beat? How are you wrapped up in this big world of politics? I think for me, uh, it was more, I've always been really interested in like statistics and and polls and and research. And that's my background. And um, I'd say ever since like 2000, when I was in college, I was always tracking polls and, and reading the stories about, you know, where, where things were heading and what races were close and, and kind of watching the, you know, all of the, especially as you got closer to the election, watching the, um, the closing days and the closing weeks. And so for me, it was more uh, getting on Twitter in 2012 and, and just kind of, you know, re- reviewing the polls and, and trying to see what the trends were. And, and obviously in 2012 uh, kind of, was it was a bit wrong on that one? I th- I really thought that uh, Romney would get better turnout, which he did not get, and uh, and so you know you learn from that. And in 2014, did better, and then 2016, along with everybody else in the world, including <laughs> Donald Trump, uh, did not think he was going to win. But you know things uh, things happened, and uh, he won. So you know uh, my day job is still um, doing consulting and, and I'm working with with product development and stuff like that. Um, I just really enjoy politics and polling. Not so much right now, since everything feels like it's on fire. It, well, more more so on Twitter than real world. But right. uh, it's just you know it's fun and and you know kind of interacting with everybody and and reading, you know Jeff's long music ramblings is always a good uh, escape from your uh, your day to day stuff. So you know it's just kind of I guess in a lot of ways just kind of spending time on Twitter and. You know, just trying to have some fun and, and not get too serious about it for the most part and just try to make the, the best of uh, what seems to be a time when everybody's angry. <laughs> and uh, we should mention <laughs> that what your your honor, right? You were named, uh, what was it, one of the top 50 accounts to follow for liberals who want to follow anti-Trump or something. What was that? <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a salon conservative, right? Yeah. And uh, <laughs> I don't I don't talk about it much because there are there are some serious repercussions if you talk too much about it in public. Uh, but you know the things that go on behind the scenes with the uh, salon cons is uh, <laughs> it's pretty deep, man. I don't I don't want to get too far into it, but there things are happening and. Uh, People have no idea what's going to come next. Well, of course, the first rule of salon cons is, you know, you don't talk about salon cons. And that's the yeah, second I, rule, too. I think I think one or two of them have gone missing, actually, <laughs> for that reason. So you got to be careful, man. Uh, we, we turn to our, uh, our our music. And again, Political Beats, we talk to people in politics, around politics, covering politics, analyzing politics about, well, nothing political at all, but about music and their favorite bands or artists. And uh, this week, uh, Josh's pick is... Well, you may have Pearl heard of them. Yeah, oh, yeah. Uh, Seattle, Washington is where they're from. The grunge movement, they're pretty much the last grunge band standing, although I'm not sure the music these days would be described quite as such. Remarkably consistent lineup from the beginning, uh, except for the rotating drummers, although that's been consistent for most of the past uh, at least decade, almost 15 years, I guess, at this point. 32 million records sold in the U.S., 60 million worldwide. And uh, perhaps the most popular rock and roll band of the 1990s. They are, in fact, uh, if you put stock in this, Rock and Roll Hall of Famers as well. And they are first ballot inductees. We know how special it is for those baseball players. Don't know how special it is for rock and rollers to be first ballot Hall of Famers, but there they are. And it's Pearl Jam. And Josh, we start with you. We open the floor. We want you to tell us, how did you get into Pearl Jam? Why do you love them? What do they mean to you? And why should other people care? I think for for me the 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 thing about Pearl Jam was, and I don't know if you guys remember these days. Uh, it kind of dates me now, but my uh, brother had signed up for Columbia House when you get the <laughs> eight cassette tapes for a penny or whatever, you know, yes. and you got to buy however many in the next. Few oh years. yeah, I remember that. Yeah, and uh, and so he got that, and at the time I think we were listening to like Guns and Roses and Metallica, and all of a sudden, you know, you you get I think it was eight or twelve, and. I think for Pearl Jam, it was when they had just come out. I think Alive was on the radio. And you're looking at this Columbia House list, and you need to fill all the spots, you know. And so the first few you know, you know you know the band you want. And then all of a sudden, it's like, well, which one should we take a chance on? It? And, um, and and 10 was one of the ones that he had picked kind of late in the, the selection process. And then we got the, the cassette tapes in and just started um, really listening to it a lot and i think at the time it was right before jeremy came out for the video and just kind of fell in love with the music and and then all of a sudden you've got you know pearl jam and we we'd, i ran out and got the temple of the dog cassette mm -hmm. um and you just you, it was like one of those things right it wasn't you know i was in high school it wasn't so much actually i think i was in middle school then it wasn't so much the lyrics or anything you know i didn't really feel like a troubled kid or anything i just <laughs> really liked the music and i liked uh just the you know the whole like scene of of up and coming grunge, and I, I wasn't a huge Nirvana fan, but for some reason I just really gravitated um, towards Pearl Jam. And then, you know, it was one of those things where I think from from that point on, it just was like the band. And then um, Versus came out pretty mm -hmm. quickly after, and my brother got the cassette tape early from a friend who had, knew someone who worked at a record store and. I think I, I think I wore that cassette tape out. I mean, for real, I really did wear that thing out, and um, you know, and it was just that that band. And, and I remember, you know, when I was in school, and they would give you those stupid projects like pick out a poem, and you know, we'd be in class, and you'd, I'd pick out these poems, and I'd turn them in. And I, I know I did black one one time, and and I think I did 
think I did uh, Dissident or some other song from Versus in another English class. And, you know, you write it down and you're like, Black by Edward Vedder, you know, <laughs> Serv- Service of the Third. And, and all of a sudden you, you get these teachers who have no idea, you know, that it's Pearl Jam or anything. And they, they send it back like, wow, I've never heard of this, you know, this author or, you know, writer. And, you know, there's such a deep meaning. And I'm just kind of laughing because on one hand, you know, I'm like, I can't believe I pulled this off for a class project. But on the other hand, I'm like, you know, it's just, it's, it was weird, you know, to use that as a poem. But, um, it, you know, and then you go from there and, and um, you know, they've just been kind of that that band that's been, you know, I, I hate using cliches and all that, but they, they've been there, you know, through the last 25 years. Like, that's been my band. Uh, and so you think of all the times in your life and, and, and how different, you know, albums that came out in that time frame, how you think of that. And, um and then going to shows and, and meeting other fans who are now people that I talk to sometimes on an almost regular, uh, you know, daily basis, you know, through text or whatever. And um, it's just, it's been amazing. I think in a lot of ways, what they've done to be able to not only stay together as a band through all of that, but to create a fan base that is, is really loyal. I think sometimes to a fault, uh, you know, it's almost like, um, you know, not to mix politics in here, but, you know, sometimes, you know, I, I think I've gotten uh, I've been told once or twice that Pearl Jam fans are like Donald Trump supporters and that they can literally do no wrong. And you'd still go to the shows, you'd still buy their, you know, buy their new shirts and their new hats. And, um, and, and you know, there's, there's truth to that. And I think a lot of bands try to replicate that kind of um, loyalty where they can decide they'll play eight shows in a year. Uh, and the, their fan base will travel all over the world to go to those eight shows, and um, you know they'll put up eight different posters that'll sell out and shirts that'll sell out, and you know it's just been really amazing uh, what they've done. And and then for me, it's just been kind of you know amazing to go from the process of the first few albums all the way to now, and you know just kind of thinking of like you know when I met my my wife, she we were 15 when we started dating. And she hated Pearl Jam, and uh, now she goes with me to shows all the time. And uh, you, know, you imagine she'd have had to adapt by now. You know, you know I, yeah, it, it took a while too. You know, you're like, you know, it's funny too with Pearl Jam, and you know, when they were big, like it was in I think '95 when they were playing those weird venues because of Ticketmaster, mm-hmm. and um, there were there was uh, I think a show in Idaho or something where the fence came down, and the story was like Pearl Jam riots, you know, and all that, and. Uh, I remember my parents at the time were like, oh, you can't go see Pearl Jam. They, you know, they cause riots. And, you know, and then uh, my wife's parents thought the same thing. And so you're like, oh, I want you to, you know, check out this Pearl Jam mixtape I made for you. And like, oh, Pearl Jam, that's that <laughs> band that causes riots, you know. And it's like, no, 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 you know, it's a, it's great music. And, and then she was playing music once and her dad walked by. He's like, man, that, that's really nice music. Who is that? And she goes, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's Pearl Jam, you know. He was like, oh, you know, it's like he was bummed that he had said that he liked it. So, um, but, you know, it's just that that whole thing where it's like that's been like kind of a constant, you know, thing for my life. And then you think of all the things around it and you think of the music during it and um, the shows I've gone to and the people you've met. And it's just been uh, I think that's why it's important to me. It's it's the music and it's also just the the way it's kind of always, you know, in a lot of ways been a, a focal point of, you know, what I've listened to and where I've gone to see and people you've met through it. And, and I think that's why it's more, you know, even more important than just the music itself. Yeah. 
I mean, uh, for me, uh, Josh and I are, I think, the same age, certainly came to know Pearl Jam in the same era, which, of course, was 10. I was uh, 11 when 10 came out. So this would have been 1990, late 91, early 92, when it first started getting major radio airplay. And, of course, you, know, you grow up as a kid. I had an older brother. This is the grunge era. What were the albums that we all had? Everybody had a copy of Nevermind by Nirvana. Everybody had Soundgarden, Super Unknown. A um, couple years later, everybody would get uh, the Stone Temple Pilots' first album, uh, Core. And uh, the other one that everybody had, and of course everybody cared about, was Pearl Jam's 10, and I was no different than the rest of them. I mean, when it first came out, you could not uh, swing a dead cat without hearing Jeremy on MTV. You could not turn on the radio without hearing Even Flow. I remember having very lengthy debates with my brother about what the lyrics to Even Flow were, <laughs> and uh, I'm still not entirely certain what they are. And I remember being very frustrated because we bought the CD, and the CD had the lyrics to all the other songs except <laughs> Even Flow. Just had the chorus's lyrics written on the side of a dollar bill for some reason. And I was like, "You sons of bitches! You knew that was the one I wanted to know, and you hid it from me. Why do you do this to me?" Um, but what happened with Pearl Jam is, okay, remember we got we got when it came out, we got ten, we got verses, and then the last one that we got was Vitology, and of course Vitology was sort of a, a, a cesura, a breaking point for so many fans, casual fans of the bands, kind of the, that that moment where you could divide the uh, the hardcore Pearl Jam fans from the ones who were just along for the whole early grunge wave, and. That was kind of me as well, because I'd right around that point, it would have been 93, 94, something happened to me, something terrible and wonderful all at the same time, which is that I discovered the Beatles. And so I turned into a classic rock kitty in my high school years, going all through the Beatles, the Who, a lot of bands that, of course, Pearl Jam idolized and adored. And uh, then uh, Kurt Cobain had the audacity to kill himself. Which kind of ended once and for all the argument about which of the two bands was better and cooler. Well, I mean, listen, and after Kurt Cobain made a martyr out of himself, he kind of won the argument for better or worse, at least in the short term. Um, so I ignored Pearl Jam. And in fact, I sort of developed a haughty contempt for them. Saying like, oh yeah, well, what a what a you know what a sludgy kind of like you know radio schlock. It's obviously crap. I said this from complete ignorance, by the way, not really knowing what their most recent music was or caring about it. What brought me back to the band of all things was a compilation. You know, I, later in my career of music loving, I you know I would just randomly buy stuff that I'd like. Well, it's time I got into this group, and this thing called Rearview Mirror had come out. This would have been in two thousand and three, so I was twenty two at the point, and. Um, it's like, oh, two CD best stuff. I'll give it a shot. I remembered all the early stuff, but it was the later stuff on that album or that double CD that really grabbed my attention. The stuff from the less known and celebrated albums like No Code and Yield and Banaral and Riot Act. And I was like, this is a really fantastic band. And so what I immediately do was I started buying all the CDs. And then, of course, inevitably, I bought the B-side set. And then, of course, inevitably, I started looking at all these random concert releases they had. Hmm, man, some of these might be worth exploring. And before I knew it, I knew everything about Pearl Jam. Without even intending to, I had become a Pearl Jam superfan, which is a very strange way to find yourself like inducted into the cult. Uh, it's like before you knew it, you're a Scientologist. Um, and at this point, I actually uh, feel like I was horribly wrong about this group at first. I, I let myself get gulled by a popular 
you know, trendy opinion. I let myself believe that they weren't as good as they really were. I fell into the trap of saying, well, okay, look at these 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 silly careerists with their, you know, radio ready pop tunes. They're, they certainly don't have the integrity that Kurt Cobain did. I mean, you know, how dare Eddie Vedder not kill himself and end the band's career early on and go out like a blazing comet? Um, I've come to respect Pearl Jam's music so much over the past several years, and uh, in particular, I've really come to respect that underappreciated late 90s run of albums from about No Code to Riot Act, where I think that they were at their best and most interesting. Although I have to admit, you go back and you listen to their last three releases, which span the 21st century, and it's like shocking how competent and listenable all of this music has been. Uh, they continue to pay dividends. They continue to be a rewarding act, and it is easy for me to understand why a massive cult has sprung up around them it's just so clear that they repay the attention that's given to them let's talk a bit about where they came from before we get to the first album 10 this is seattle this is the grunge uh, scene that's about to burst uh this is alice in chains and this is Soundgarden, and, and all those bands are in that same little area and uh stone gossard jeff uh amen were, were in a band called Green River for a while in the eighties, and um, and then and then formed uh, Mother Love Bone, and their vocalist Andrew Wood uh, died in what uh, nineteen ninety of a heroin overdose, which unfortunately is how many grunge acts met their demise uh, eventually. So uh, at that point, Mike McCready comes in, and they're looking for a drummer. They talk to Jack Irons, who was in Red Hot Chili Peppers. He says no, but. Um, uh, I might help you find a lead singer. And he passes on the demo tapes to a guy from California named Eddie Vedder, who was singing in a band called Bad Radio at that point. And uh, Eddie Vedder began to sing over those tracks that were sent to him, sent it back. They liked it. They flew up for an audition. Within a week, Eddie Vedder's in the band. And there you have, well, except for the, the, the drummer audition, there's Pearl Jam right there. Not a bad way to start, but I will say this. I'm going to make a lot of enemies right now, although I may not make enemies with the gang on the show today, as I have found out by discussing this in our pregame <laughs> show notes. I think that 10, the most well-known, most beloved, most epic Pearl Jam album of them all, the album that defined grunge, that gave a sound its true color and character, I hate this album. I hate this album with a passion. I got very little good to say about this album. What I'll say good about 10 is that Once is a really effective opening song. Jeremy, despite the fact that it's a silly, overplayed MTV show horse about a kid who commits suicide in front of his schoolmates, is a really well-written, melodic song, and it's a really effective production, too. And he hit me with the But I don't even like this, the album version of Evenflow. Evenflow is a great song, but it just it's, it has no energy on this original version. They remade it for a single later on, 
Uh, and that's the version that's actually available on the best of, which is probably one of the reasons why I came back and I was like, hey, this is way better than I thought it was. And I think that the rest of this album is slop. Black. Everybody loves black. I think black is just maudlin garbage. Release is pointless. There are sludgy rockers like like Why Go and Garden and Porch and Deep. Deep is an offense to the ears. Deep is just a <laughs> terrible song. I have to say, I'm gonna. I get, people will think I, I'm a complete philistine when I say none of the legend of this album has any effect on me. I'm even tired of listening to Alive, although I'm sure other people will. Pearl Jam did not even start to get that interesting as a band to me until after this album. So I'll jump in because I'm, I'm the guy that emailed this morning and said, guys, I've got a confession. Um, I, I didn't really like 10 when it came out. <laughs> and I listened to it again yesterday, and I, I still don't think I like it very much. And it's um, it's true. I, I don't. I had actually dismissed Pearl Jam as a band after hearing 10 for the first time because I didn't like it. And it took me a while to come back. Uh, come back to them. Um, I, I, I don't grab it. I don't ever really feel the desire to, to listen to it. Uh, Jeff alluded to this. I, I think th I don't like the, pr the murky production. There's a lot of sludge. Brendan O'Brien meant so much to this band when he came on for verses and stuck around for a while in terms of sharpening their sound and making it a little more palatable to, uh, to my ears, at least. Yeah, I like one says the album opener. Um, I think Oceans is okay. Um, and, and Alive is okay, too. You know, I listen to stuff like Porch. You know, the the, uh, the, uh, the guitar solo in Porch is just basically hair metal type stuff on the album, too. So I'm you know, I'm with Jeff on this, and I, I don't know. I, I, my, my guess is many people listening will be swearing at us at this point. Maybe maybe uh, Josh can save us. Turning off the podcast. Yes. People know nothing about Pearl Jam. But I, I, I don't like oh. 10. Yeah, I feel like we're about to turn into like a uh, like a, a cable news talk show rumble here. Uh, <laughs> I, you know, ten's one ten. I think for me is is not necessarily one of my favorite albums, but it's it's. Um, I mean, there's so much good stuff on there. I'm trying to like uh, release uh, release is a song that I think if you've ever seen a Pearl Jam show and they open with it, it's just it's like the perfect opener. one of those songs i mean i i like most of 10 when it came out so it's not like I, I hated it but i think a lot of those songs when you hear them live it's just a whole different thing like black um i like black on the record but live especially those those ones from like 94 95 93 um they're just so good like uh, mtv unplugged the version of black on there is just amazing um porch is a song that i think on the studio it does lose a lot of its energy but then if you listen to, to porch live especially again in those 90s bootlegs they're just so good uh you know garden is good um oceans is a great opener for a concert and um i think to a certain extent 10 was so overplayed that you know it, it kind of is an album i think for especially people that stuck around for a long time with them i think a lot of people kind of get tired of but it's not because it's a bad album it's just because you've had 25 years of it and 
I mean, how many times have you heard Alive, Black, even Flo Jeremy on the radio? It, it, it is a very well-played, overplayed album. Um, and, and then the one last thing I'll say about 10 is, um, to your point earlier about uh, Brendan O'Brien when he came in for Versus, um, they actually had Brendan O'Brien uh, remix mm-hmm. the 10 album a few years ago, and it does sound a lot better. Far superior version. Way of better than, than the initial one. Because the initial one, it does. It sounds very... Just kind of, you know, it's like almost like they were using a ton of effects to try to make it, you know, sound more into the time or something. But um, when Brendan O'Brien redid the uh, the tracks, he, he made it sound a lot crisper. And I think everything, for the most part, sounds better. I mean, it's not a different album necessarily, but it sounds better. I mean, I think some of the most overplayed songs on this album still remain the best ones, though. Like Jeremy is a song that, you know, you're supposed to, even Pearl Jam fans are supposed to sort of roll their eyes at that and be like, oh, yeah, crying out Jeremy, for God's sakes. Jeremy's a good song, man. It's a really powerful lyric, even now. And 1991, when it was released, that was legitimately transgressive. That was a song that was like, wow, that's a subject you did not hear on the radio. You did not hear as a radio hit. And it was set to a really, really impressive backing track. That was one of the very few that the original album's production, not the remix, is is more effective precisely because it has that glossy late 80s, Mm -hmm. early 90s glammy sheen to it. But when they hit that chorus, you know, where daddy didn't give affection and like – well, I mean, okay, that's the moment where you, where Eddie Vedder made the myth, where Pearl Jam became the myth, and it's just that the rest of the album doesn't live up to Jeremy, in my opinion. Uh, yeah, actually, Jeremy's one of my least favorite songs, which is kind of funny. There you I, go. And uh, I think uh, Jeremy. True fan, right there. You're the true fan. <laughs> I guess you know it's funny too because you you know um, they don't play Jeremy live a whole lot, you know, or at least as much as they used to. They still play it, and. Um, you know, it's one of those songs when they play it, you know, obviously the whole crowd knows it and you get into it and stuff. But, you know, again, that's another song, I think, uh, like it, it, the video was was I think it was like the number one video on MTV for months or whatever. It was just like every day. You know, that's all you saw. But um, they had a they played that at the Video Music Awards. I want to say like 93 or something. And that is a version of Jeremy that's just so good. And it, it's just I think sometimes. And maybe it's just from from listening to a lot of concerts and all that. But like 10, for some reason, to me it just pales in comparison to the live shows in the, the era. And, you know, I think part of it's because, you know, it was a, a heavily produced album. I think they were trying because Pearl Jam wasn't unknown at the time, you know, you're, you're trying to give it the best presentation you can, but like Jeremy and, and black and porch and um, once, uh, you know, even, even flow, they all have this, just such a, a more energetic feel to it live. And especially in those um, early bootlegs, that's like uh, for 10, I think once I had bootlegs available to me, I listened to those more than the albums just because right. I just really enjoyed the live, especially Porch, because Porch Live is like, it was like an eight, nine minute thing and they would do improvs in the middle and, you know, Eddie would sing stuff and Mike would play a lot more, uh, you know, longer, better solos than the album and, and, and release live and, and stuff like that. I think it just, for me, it's a whole different uh album live than it is as an album, you know, listening to it on, on a stereo at home. I mean, that actually kind of takes us, I would say, to the next album, which is Versus. This is the one where they bring in Brendan O'Brien. This is the first of many troubled Pearl Jam productions. It's clearly a reaction to their fame. Mm -hmm. They're becoming like grunge idols and, you know, Eddie Vedder ending up on the cover of magazines. And I think also the other thing that is a a clear reaction to is the sort of – maybe it was a media-fabricated rivalry, although I think it was a real rivalry as well. Stephen Hyden. 
as a critic I like. Uh, you know, um, we've talked about him a couple times on the show. Wrote a really great chapter on this in his recent book. Uh, uh, your your favorite band is killing me. He talked about the Pearl Jam Nirvana rivalry and what it meant. First of all, to kids our age, because I remember it well. I don't know about you, Scott. I don't know about you, Josh. But that was like a real thing that like. Oh no, people, it was. Yep. People got into fights in school <laughs> over like who's better, Nirvana or Pearl Jam? Man, hey, well, you know, screw you, dude. You don't understand. And like people would get sent to the principal's office over arguing over glorified G versus like heart shaped box. This happened. I remember this happened to me. In fact, <laughs> so that's why I remember it. Um, that was a thing that really affected the band. It would obviously affect them even more with Vitology, which I think in many ways is a reaction to uh, Kurt Cobain's suicide. But uh, you first see it's you know, showing up on Versus, which is a much more uh, sort of straight-ahead rock album. I, I have a tendency to call this their classic rock album. Um, and it's funny because I go back, every time I go back to Versus and I listen to its songs all the way through, I look at the track listing and I like, you know, I really like almost every one of these songs. Mm-hmm. There are very like rats and blood I'm not really that into. I think Elderly Women Behind the Counter in a Small Town, despite the fact that it's kind of a greatest hits for Pearl Jam, is, is, is a bit boring to me. It's kind of like, well, okay, Eddie Vedder proving he could write an acoustic ballad, but it doesn't really do too much for me. But so much of the rest of this album is just top shelf stuff and yet maybe this is a compliment to Pearl Jam for me um, because I find it to be far less interesting than whatever they did after this point and yet this is so many if you go uh, the rearview mirror that best of has like seven songs from this album (laughs) on it and you can't really argue with any of the inclusions so this is a lot of people's favorite Pearl Jam albums it might be one of yours as well and I certainly can't blame you uh, if you feel that way I mean, I think the songs are very solid, and I, I don't, I don't blame him for putting six or seven uh, songs on the greatest hits album. Brendan O'Brien comes in; he's a great producer. Red Hot Chili Peppers, Dunstable Pilots, Pearl Jam, Black Crows, uh, many, many, many others. He comes in and writes the ship immediately in terms of sound. This is a brighter, uh, crisper, cleaner sound. I think he, he helps separate some of the uh, uh, some of the instrumentation in the mix. And from from really from Go, literally the first track of the album, that is better than anything else on ten. Go is better than any song on ten, as far as I'm Agreed. concerned. I think so, it might even be the best song of the album. Yeah, and so opinion. and so from the very start, they're putting a, a huge foot forward in, in whatever kind of battle uh, that they're that they're involved with with other rock and roll bands. Dark stuff, family turmoil and abuse and violence. The first three songs, "Go," "Animal," and "Daughter," all uh, to my ear deal with abusive relationships. And uh, "Daughter," of course, from a female perspective, which Eddie Vedder proved to be quite apt at writing uh, over the years. Songs from a from a female's perspective. All yeah. three of those are classics. Um, a Dissident is one of my favorite Pearl Jam tracks. And in, there are a lot of Pearl Jam songs where the, where the chorus is kind of a letdown from the verses, if that makes sense. Dissident is one of the Pearl Jam songs where the chorus is the song. I mean, that huge uh, riff and that huge chorus in Dissident works uh, very well for me. At a
about rats, which uh, Jeff mentioned. <laughs> when I hear rats, I, I like for a couple of seconds think it really is Dave Matthews singing because Eddie's. He does way, sound way, like yeah, Dave Matthews' song. You're he's right. <laughs> way down that low register, and he's kind of got that at the same kind of affectation that Dave Matthews has, and, and the chorus kind of brings it out, but. Those first verses, it sounds like Dave Matthews singing. But, uh, you know, there's a little more space to these songs for Mike McCready to, to work and, and to play his solos. Um, and, and look, I think, you know, Jeff, calling it a classic rock album is a good point. All these songs have big riffs. All these songs sound great on the radio. All these songs still sound really good today and still get airplay. I mean, it's popular for a darn good reason. It sold, I don't know, you know, if you weren't around or you weren't our age because we're all the same age. It sold nearly a million copies in a week. It w- You could not escape from Versus uh, that first week, the first two weeks when it was released. Those songs were everywhere, and everybody had a copy of Versus that first week it was released. Um, and I think, by and large, it holds up extremely well, even today. Yeah, you know, the thing with Versus that's kind of funny is I think when it came out, uh, the band released, I can't remember if Go was the first single, and then all of a sudden the radio was just like, well, screw that. We're just going to play the whole album. I mean, every, you know, they, I remember, uh, you know, locally Q101 was, you know, the big rock station out here. And yeah. it was like every 15 minutes there'd be go animal daughter dissident, uh, Rearview mirror. They played, um, they played elderly woman. They played, um, uh, you know, rats got some play. And, and it was just like, you know, to your point, there was literally, I think outside of leash, they could play every, every song without worrying about, you know, swearing all that. And, it was just like the funniest thing because they no, had like the funniest thing is that Rearview Mirror has the f bomb in it, and I remember hearing it on the radio for like an entire year, yeah. yeah. And they never bothered to bleep it out. I guess they just figured people wouldn't ex- expect to hear it at the end. You know, I gather speed from you effing with me at the end yeah. of the song, and yeah. it's just like uh, you know, it's it's funny how like radio DJs and producers just figure, nah, we can get away with this. No You're one's gonna care. Pre pre, <laughs> pre Janet Jackson, yeah. that happened a lot. I mean, who are you from the Who? There's the f bomb that everyone. <laughs> left in there steve miller and uh the funky blank going down in the city that was left in up until janet jackson and that crackdown there were a lot of classic rock songs that had little f-bombs and stuff that just got played and no one seemed yeah, to care as long as they didn't forefront it so much. that's right, right. yeah yeah and, and go is this, go had one too and like it's funny because that, that right. was the first yeah. single and go had it right in there and like i always used to we always used to laugh because my brother and i would be in the car and whenever we got to kick the music. So we'd play verses, you know, and we'd always do that stupid thing. Like whenever we knew it was coming, you'd cough or you'd say something loud. <laughs> and then, you know, all of a sudden you realize that because of, I guess maybe because of the way Eddie kind of sings with that little bit of like that mumble or whatever, my parents never, never picked up on it, you know, uh, on those songs. So I guess that's why the radio did it because all of a sudden, unless you're listening for it, you don't you know it's right. there. And so all of a sudden we're like, we don't need to cough on that one. We're okay. You know? And, uh, I mean, that's how that's how these radio stations got away without getting the FCC finding them millions of times. Yeah, and and, and uh, leash on that album, you know, uh, I think on the lyric sheet it says something like um, "Get out of my lucky face," you know, and and uh, and one day it was in the car and it was playing, and, and you know, all of a sudden my dad's like. I don't think you guys should be playing that or in here or whatever it was, you know, we're like, no, no, he's saying lucky. He's saying lucky. He's like, he's not saying lucky. <laughs> we have a lyric sheet to yeah. prove it. I get home and I show him the lyric sheet. He just gives you that look like, Who just, do you walk, think you're fooling, yeah, son? just walk away. You lost <laughs> this one. It's just like, you know, it, it uh, you know, to, you know, and that, that was the one song you couldn't play on the radio. And of course it was, you know, the, the one time that we had the tape going and you didn't, you know, it's hard to be like, eject the tape. You don't want to hear this song, you know, so you just kind of you, you, you endure it and then you just hope you get by it. And we, we did not get by it. And, 
the, the lyric sheet evidence did not did not uh, pass as uh, submittable evidence. So nope, nope. <laughs> the thing about verses is that again, there's there's the the number one big radio hit on this album is one that. I, not as much as Jeremy, but I think fans do also tend to dismiss Daughter by saying, like, oh, well, that's their soft acoustic number. That's their radio-ready hit. Daughter is a brilliant song. Daughter is a brilliant song. Scott actually pointed out it's the first time that Eddie Vedder would, would make it a point to try to write from a woman's perspective. And not only a woman, but a young girl, for that matter, mm-hmm. which is pretty brave, okay, for anyone to try to do, you know, as a guy, as a rock star, as a surfer bro from San Diego, no less. But, you know, he had the family background that probably made him more sensitive to these things than others. And it's just such an emotionally adept and graceful portrait of, of, of a young girl in a really tough family situation and a tough relationship. And there's anger there, but there's also there's also defiance, there's pain, um, and there is that brilliant, brilliant acoustic guitar riff, which is probably the best produced thing on this record. And then uh, when, you know, it goes from the acoustic riff to, you know, Eddie singing, you know, she holds the hand that holds her down, she will rise up again. And then, you know, you have the, your classic early Pearl Jam moment where Mike McCready just starts like, and Stone Gosser just start like, you know, guitar soloing their balls off. And it's a beautiful rock moment that was uh, basically what early Pearl Jam was great at and what made them sort of, you know, unavoidable, but in a good way during that era. And the other one I want to single out um, is, uh, of all things, Glorified G, which is a, a really funny, stupid song, uh, making fun of a band member, I believe. I think yeah. it's their drummer, Dave Abraziz, yeah. uh, who, who was, uh, you know, well, bought a gun, I think, um, and was like, hey, I can buy a gun. I, I got no problem with that. I'm not going to get into the politics of it, but I actually almost think it's funny. If you're going to write an anti-gun song, this is the way to do it because it's <laughs> really, really funny and it's really great music. When they get to that sort of loopy, glorified version of a pellet gun chorus, like you're singing along with it. I don't care if you're like A1 paid up dues paying member of the NRA. You are going <laughs> to like that song because it's impossible not to like that song. It is such a clever fun little riff and i gotta give them credit for uh managing to find a way to package a political message into a song that is essentially irresistible That's, I mean, that is the best of this album. That dissident 
and you know daughter are the ones that really survive for me beyond a go uh, more than anything else on uh, uh, verses, even including Rearview Mirror. Uh, Rearview Mirror, of course, is the signature song on this album. It's it's one of uh, I think the most played song in the entire Pearl Jam discography. The one they play live more than anything else. Um, and it's like sort of this live, it extends out to like, you know, anywhere from like eight to 14 minutes, depending how they feel that day. Um, and it's a really good song. I always remember thinking as a kid that it was about like the Rodney King riots, uh, which probably wasn't. I don't know why I associated it in my mind <laughs> with that. There's something about the chorus, you know, I can't breathe, holding me down, fist in my face, swallow it down. It felt like, you know, and then rear view mirror, like somebody being pulled out of their car to be beaten. I think that's why I associated <laughs> it. No, I really, I associated it with like no, original death in my mind. I don't know yeah. if that was right, but I always did. But, you know, what were you going to say, Josh? No, no, it's like when you're as you're saying, I'm like, yeah, that actually makes sense. You know, it does, and it, the timing I think lines up. I, you know, I, I think it does, um, but of course, it's not about that at all. It's just no, about no. Like getting out of a really bad relationship is what it's yeah. about. But it's funny how that song meant one thing to me as like a 13 year old kid. I couldn't really understand what Eddie Vedder was really trying to talk about. <laughs> um, what happens between verses and Vitology really just changes everything for the band, and it has nothing to do with the band themselves. It has to do with Kurt Cobain. He kills himself. It's the end of Nirvana. In a lot of ways, it's sort of the end of the grunge movement spiritually, if not like literally in terms of the bands that were involved in it. And uh, there's really no other way to interpret uh, Pearl Jam's next album, Vitology, which comes out in late 94, as anything but a reaction to that and a reaction to how is this band supposed to present itself? How is this band going to carry itself? Um, you know, in the wake of sort of this collapse of the grunge movement, the death of Kurt Cobain, what do we mean? What are we trying to be? How are we trying to exist? I think also there, there's a, you know, a secondary thing going on here where Eddie Vedder is really kind of getting into a bit of a, he's locking horns with yeah. the, the band that he joined. You know, he's kind of going to war with Mike McCready and Stone Gossard about like, you know, where are the direction of this music going to go? Who has control? over the band and that kind of plays itself out over the next two albums but I think Vitology is a fascinating album this is to me the first in a way truly essential Pearl Jam album and I say that despite the fact that fully half of it is absolutely unlistenable garbage that I hate. <laughs> I hate half of this album. I don't just feel like, oh, that's an adequate song. I want to throw half of this album into a dust fire. I want it to burn into ashes. I hate it that much. And yet the other half of this album is the most transcendent music that Pearl Jam ever made. It is the biggest split personality record of their entire career. It contains some of the most Best, some of the absolutely greatest music that not only they, but any band of the 1990s ever made, including favorites of mine like Pearl Jam or Radiohead or My Bloody Valentine. This is up there with that. And then the other half of it is um, uh, Eddie Vedder playing an accordion out of tune and mumbling about bugs. So what are we supposed to do with Vitology? How do we interpret well, this almost willfully perverse record? You, you have to take it into context as well of a band and Vetter specifically turning away, trying to turn away from some of the fame and the spotlight. You know, they weren't doing music videos. They weren't doing a ton of interviews. Uh, they decided to release Vitology on vinyl for, I think, two weeks before it dropped anywhere else. And there are songs in here that reflect that. Uh, you know, the first single is Spin the Black Circle, which was released, I think, pre, uh, pre-release of the album. That's a fast punk kind of tune that uh, I wouldn't expect to get a lot of airplay. And I, I don't remember it being a giant, giant radio hit at the time. 
Um, it, it was a Gosser demo that Vetter played at the wrong speed and said, you should play this fast like this. There's something there. Right. Uh, and it won him a Grammy. So there you go. Yeah, it did. It, turned, it was their Husker Du tribute. Yeah. I mean, that's straight up like, you know, Zen Arcade level Husker Du. You know, not for you. The second, it was the second signal. But that's just, you know, small my table, seats just two, got so crowded I can't make room. It's uh, trying to, they didn't mind if they were pushing people away. And I think they were fairly uh, upfront about that. Uh, Corduroy, which is one of the great, great Pearl Jam songs. Um, from you a, could argue it's the greatest. I mean, you really yeah. could. Uh, Eddie Vedder saw you know a, 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 a facsimile of a corduroy jacket he was wearing for a couple of years being sold for like 650 bucks, and there's this frustration with the spotlight overall and the commodification of what they were doing of their music. But it's a beautiful song. It's a great song. There's a ringing uh, acoustic guitar during the chorus, which I love, and that 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 slow build to start. Uh, I like whipping a lot too. It's actually a pre-verses song. They had it done before verses, left it off verses. It's on. It's on Vitology. And, and Josh mentioned Q101, which was the big rock station, modern rock station in Chicago at the time. They were still trying. You know, Pearl Jam was trying to push everybody away a little bit with with Vitology, and Q101 still with the big embrace. They did billboards and huge campaigns, and all it said on the billboards was "Not for you." And it, you know, the music was not for you. Pearl Jam, not for you. That's what the billboard said for the, the for Q101 in Chicago. So despite the fact that we're trying to push some people away, there were still big uh, big, you know, radio hits and also tons of fans out there for Vitology. It still sold extremely well. You want a definition of what rock and roll is to me? One of the definitions that I would offer you of what rock and roll is to me is that middle eight section of Corduroy, where he says and this is a lyric, by the way, that I misheard for decades. Yeah. You know, everything has changed absolutely. Right? Everything has changed. Absolutely nothing has changed. Take my hand. Um, spell my – was it smell my picture? Uh, spell my T-shirt. Uh, it, 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 the, the, it's the chord changes that go underneath it. And then he goes back into I don't want to take what you can give. I would rather starve than eat your bread. Um, that is rock right there, period. That is one of the greatest rock songs that any band has ever written. And then, of course, the perverseness of it is that it's bracketed by Pry 2 on the one end and <laughs> on the other, which are two songs that you never, literally, you don't even need to hear once, much less ever hear again. Um, 
it's it's paradoxes like these that make Vitology so fascinating to me. The other song on the album that there's so many good ones. Last Exit, I think, is a great opener, yeah. probably the best one that they ever had, I think, other than sometimes from the next record. Um, but the one that really jumps out to me, and this is a song that actually I, I can almost get emotional when I talk about, is Nothing Man. This is a song actually they refused to play for years, never played it. Uh, they, they finally started playing it, I believe, in like 2000, and then it became kind of like a, a fairly uh, constant member of their set lists. But up until that point, Vetter refused to sing it. And there's just, I can understand why. It's one of the most um, – if you've ever had a family, whether it's a, a wife or you know a brother, a mother, a father, people who have depended upon you and you've made promises to them, you've told them that you'll be there for them, you'll do things for them, and then you've let them down in one way or another – uh, maybe by being selfish or maybe by being stupid, maybe not by not being able to be there for them the way you promised you would. It's just so difficult to listen to Nothing Man and, and not uh, just almost want to collapse with the pain of that song. There's this line, you know, she once believed in every story he had to tell. And then one day she stiffened and took the other side, empty stairs from each corner of a shared prison cell. You know, and he who forgets will be destined to remember nothing, man, nothing, man. And that's just how you feel when you've let somebody down and you've you've broken their hearts. And again, Eddie Vedder is not usually celebrated for the power of his lyrics, although I think his lyrics are a lot better than people give him credit for uh, it. The band is usually celebrated for the sound of their, their music, the ensemble. But I have to say that nothing, man, is one of the most sharp, uh, most probing and, and most lacerating lyrics that Eddie Vedder ever wrote. Probably one of the best in the entire Pearl Jam discography. think of Vitology too and, and like uh, Nothing Man I think yeah I think the first time they played it was like 98 and then um, or no they played it once in 94 and then they didn't play it again for like four years I think and then they played it um, I think the next time they played it might have been when they did their uh, public radio broadcast that they did um, after Yield was released in 98 I think but um, and I, I think my brother was he actually to to go back to my earlier thing about using Pearl Jam lyrics for uh, for schoolwork, I think he did Nothing <laughs> Man uh, when he was in high school, and I think he said it, it makes sense that the song's about someone going through an abortion. I don't know if that's true, and I don't really what. Never. Yeah, I don't know. And you know, it's funny because he did it, and his teacher was like, "Oh my goodness, this is brilliant," you know, and all that. And I remember we were reading it, and my brother's like, "I don't know if it actually is, but it it, it made sense." And and I was like, yeah, I guess it kind of does, you know, the the you know, into the sun and burn, you know, all that stuff. And and uh, anyways, and and um, I've I've always really liked Nothing Man as a song, um, just because it, it's just it's like it's like a great song with it. It's a it's like a quiet song, but it just moves really well and builds and builds and builds. Um, and uh, I think Vitalogy, you know, for the most part, I think was them trying to find a way to maybe redefine the, the, the game, you know, to try to take some of the, the 
the, the pressure they were feeling off themselves. But of course, you know, like you had said earlier, it was, I think they had the in- internal struggle of who was in control of the band. And um, I think Stone Gosser once made a comment about how difficult it was to finally kind of realize that I'm not the band. You know, I, I don't lead this band. He does, you know. And, um, you know, you look at, uh, I think in, on 10, Eddie Vedder wrote one song. On Versus, he wrote two of the songs. On Vitalogy, he wrote six of the songs. And so it's like you, you go from having a, a lead singer who's just, you know, contributing a little bit musically, and all of a sudden he basically wrote over half the album when you take out the filler stuff. Not not just the words, but the music. Right. Federal yeah. Right. Yeah. music. Yeah. Federal yeah. Wrote not for you. He wrote whipping. He wrote corduroy all by himself. He wrote better yeah. man. You know, he did all of it. Yeah, and, and and not only that, but you look at Vitalogy, and I, I would say I would argue that the two biggest songs commercially are corduroy and better man. He wrote both of those, and uh, you know, better man. He wrote you know what ten years before that or whatever. So it's kind of amazing that. He wrote Better Man 10 years earlier, however many years earlier, and it, it, it took him three albums to put it out there. By the way, nothing, nothing more perfectly embodies the way Pearl Jam was feeling really ambivalent about their fame than Better Man, where this is the certainly easily the most commercially radio-ready song on the record. It's a beautiful song, probably the most famous song for casual fans on Vitology, and they, they insist on putting like you know 45 seconds of like sort of random noise right <laughs> at the front of it, just almost yeah. dissuade you from listening to it and, and um, push you away before they get to the gold that they know is there. Yeah, and, and the funny thing about that is that that noise that's before Better Man, for whatever reason, on their initial demo tape of it, it was before Spin the Black Circle, and then for you know when they went to go do the final track listing and all that, they moved it to Better Man. So I don't know what the reasoning was, but again, you know, to your point, you know, Spin the Black Circle was I think it's a radio friendly song, but they never released as a single Corduroy or Better Man, which were their two biggest hits, and I'm sure they knew at the time those were going to be the two biggest hits and it didn't matter because the mm-hmm. radio played them anyways, but they, they try, you could tell they were trying to, uh, you know, try to deflect some of their, you know, I, I guess the building fame and kind of them being able to try to maybe shave off some of that. And, uh, it didn't work for Vitalogy. I mean, they were, they were selling, you know, they played soldier field, they were playing stadiums. And well, do you think the war with Ticketmaster had anything to do with that? Trying to dodge fame? Yes, of course they were trying to like, do the, what they considered to be the right thing by their fans. But I mean, clearly at the time you have an album, it's released, it goes to number one. Everybody wants to see you on tour. This is the moment that you choose to completely sabotage your, your what your bread and butter is, which is <laughs> your live performances and the ability people to see you live i always felt like that was some sort of maybe some subconscious freudian move on the part of vetter and the band to undercut their popularity to reduce the heat in a way by making them smaller again yeah and, and you know you think about it too i mean you go through ver- 10 and verses which they toured pretty much non-stop for three years or whatever and then all of a sudden you get to vitalogy and you know they had all the issues with the infighting in the band and you know 
problems with control and all that. And then also, like to your point, you know, the Ticketmaster thing may have been a really good way to kind of, you know, take some of the touring pressure off, take some of the, you know, the sellout crowds off. But, you know, at the same time, when they did that, it, it also kind of made the shows that they did do that much more with a huge spotlight on them. Um, the amount of planning that they did. I mean, they, they played some of those places where they literally were in charge of, you know, putting up fences, putting right. up, you know, all of the security themselves because they were playing basically fairgrounds and, um, you know, fields that were yeah. not... Fields yeah. and farmland somewhere yeah. like rural Idaho, right? Yeah, and then all of a sudden, you know, it, every... I don't, you know, again, Pearl Jam was, you know, the thing at the time, so it's hard to, to say it would have been any different, but I remember, like, MTV News covered almost every one of those shows, and they covered almost every one of the, you know, the, the issues they had with security or, you know, the comments he made about the Ticketmaster thing. So, you know, I don't know if they did try to do that to deflect some of their coverage i don't think it worked it certainly didn't seem to I, I don't think they slowed anything down until no code really i think no codes when they finally were able to kind of put put the brakes on a bit as far as you know really just kind of decimating the the casual top 40 radio fan that was following <laughs> them that that i think vitology was was huge um yeah. it just made as big as versus but it, it was huge uh, this is Political Beats, a presentation of National Review. Don't uh, forget to subscribe. Not don't subscribe. We want you to subscribe. Uh, please iTunes. Do. Please, please. iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn is where you get uh, subscriptions every Monday, new episodes. Or you can go to nationalreview.com, click on podcasts. You'll find all sorts of NR podcasts, including Political Beats. My name's Scott Bertram, Jeff Blair alongside. Josh Jordan is with us. Find him on Twitter at Numbers Muncher. And we're talking about... Pearl Jam, and uh, Josh mentioned the very next Pearl Jam album, which is No Code. And I don't want to steal too much of Jeff's thunder on this because I know No Code is a personal favorite for him. Uh, I, I will say one of the big changes, Jack Irons comes in as, as a new drummer for, for No Code. Um, and this, you know, if Vitalogy, the band was fraying a bit, what you read about the no code sessions is they were fraying a lot. Uh, uh Jeff Ament wasn't even told they were going to, uh, record a thing until hours before he was going to be in studio. People were considering quitting. Um, and everyone gives irons a lot of credit. He was older. He had a wife, he had children for being kind of the glue that held some things together for giving some sage advice to the rest of the band members. Um, but they got through it, and, and they put out no code. To me, this is this is a slow grow of an album. Uh, it, it, it took a while for me to appreciate it, and I don't like it quite as much as Jeff does. But for me, the, the album hinges on three songs right in the middle. In My Tree, Smile, and Off He Goes. If you like those, you're going to like the album. If you don't, uh, probably not, right? Uh, in My Tree has such an influence from Irons. It's, his drumming is fantastic. It's, it's a soulful track. Uh, Smile has, uh, I think, perhaps the first use of harmonica on a Pearl Jam track, and it makes some sense because they had just been uh, touring and working with Neil Young. Uh, most of the band had been on the Mirrorball album and, and the tour. And not just the harmonica, but that song sounds Neil Young-inspired. And then I think one of the best Pearl Jam songs that maybe a lot of people don't know, Off He Goes. Um, it's almost six minutes long. It doesn't feel it. It earns every every second of it. It's a slow, direct uh, track that unfolds in this methodical way about uh, Eddie Vedder. He, he has said so on stage. It's about Eddie Vedder being a bad friend uh, to, to people around him. But there's some introspective lyrics. It's a beautiful harmonies on there, a gentle melody. 
And I think that that that, that middle section right there, in my tree, smile, off he goes, um, kind of turned it for me to say this is actually a pretty darn good album. Uh, I love Hail Hail. It's one of my favorite, you know, up tempo Pearl Jam, just rock and roll songs. Uh, but No Code is also a, a place where a lot of people jumped off the. I don't want to say bandwagon, just just jumped off. Um, you know, people may have bought the first. But three albums and, and didn't grab no code. I don't know if it went platinum for quite a long time after after its release from a band that sold nearly a million copies in week one of Versus just a few years ago. So if they were trying to push some people away, no code with uh, it's not a straight ahead rock album. There's some experimentation and some Eastern influences and some tracks. Um, I think push some more people away if that was what they were going for. They were successful. Yeah. I'll, do you want to jump in, Jeff? You want me to take no, this? Josh, you go first because I got, I got, a, I got. He's a got nice a lot to say. Now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know the thing with no code is I remember getting it, and um, you know again, again to 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 date the the release. I drove, we drove to Venture Venture Store to buy that. I don't know if you guys remember Venture. Oh and, yeah. Uh, and I remember we bought it, and at the time um, I had heard uh, Lucan was played live, um, and I had to hear uh, Habit was played at uh, Soldier Field. And I swear, No Code is the album where they finally sat down and said, we are just done with being this runaway, you know, success of a commercial band. Because you look at that album and you look at all the radio-friendly songs and they picked Who You Are right. as that first single. And I remember listening... No, no, they picked Off He Goes as the first single. No, no, no. Who You, Who you Are was the, the first single. And, um, and then Off He Goes, which is even that, less commercial. Yeah. And that, so it was, it was Who You Are, Off He Goes, and Hail Hail were the three singles. And I remember um, they had, you know, they, they back then it wasn't leaked online. So they had the uh, embargo until like 8 a.m. in the morning, whatever it was. Right. And Ma- Man Cow in the Morning had it. And uh, <laughs> I remember them playing Who You Are, and the song ended. And they're and perplexed. <laughs> they're all like, this is garbage. This is trash. What are they doing? Who? What are they thinking? Oh, no. And, okay. and, and to release that song, I mean, there is there is no way anyone will ever convince me that they released that song with the intention of it being popular because that is one of the least uh, you know, casual fan accessible songs off the album. And not only that, but to take one, like a half step back, you know, between Vitalogy and No Code, they released their little Merkinball EP, uh, which had I Got Id and Long Road, which are both extremely good songs. And they released them on a, a one-off EP, which again, takes them away from No Code, which, you know, I love No Code, but it's it's definitely, I think of all of their albums, it's the least casual, you know, music fan ready it's just, there's it's just it's disjointed it's not you know it's not really like a, a traditional rock album in any way and so i love it but at the same time i could see why 
you know, it turned off people, and, and I, I really do believe a lot of that was by design. This album is almost uh, almost genius, and, and people who don't like it are, are fools, benighted, and I pity them. Let's just cover some early history here, though, because it, it is relevant, I think, in explaining what happened on this record. Right before No Code and after Vitology, Pearl Jam fell in with Neil Young. That's a very important thing to understand, not only because... Neil Young had long been a hero to Pearl Jam. Uh, you know, they'd been playing rockin' in the free world for quite a while before they ever met him. Uh, but because Neil Young, who who does not normally like people, does not normally like <laughs> say, hey, you know, let's play with you. Uh, let's jam together. He's kind of a, a weird, lonery guy. Literally saw Pearl Jam and said, I want you to be my backing band. All right? That's how much he loved Pearl Jam. That's how much he felt a kinship with the music that they were making and, and, and how it related to the music that he had been making throughout his career. And so the result of that, of course, in Neil Young's discography, which maybe we will address one day in a different show, was Mirrorball. And then the Pearl Jam side of that was the, the, uh, the two-song EP that, that Josh just mentioned called Merkin Ball. And it's got two songs. I Got ID, of course, that's not what Eddie Vedder sings on the uh, chorus of the song. But it's just a great kind of classic Neil Young wailing guitar line in the background. And then Long Road, which is uh, even, I think, in some ways more compelling. Um, a beautiful song. And it kind of it contributed to one of Pearl Jam's most iconic moments several years later um, after 9-11. If you remember the song, uh, the concert for Heroes, is the uh, the fundraiser that was put on with all you know all these great you know musical acts coming together uh, to uh, you know perform as a tribute and a fundraiser for the firefighters and the police of New York City mm-hmm. after 9/11. Um, what happened? Well, Pearl Jam came on. It was it was uh, Mike McCready and it was Eddie Vedder and it was Neil Young uh, doing Long Road. Neil Young was just playing the pump organ and singing vocals in the background and it's just a very quiet very transfixing moment very magical and very moving and and i'll be sure to link it in our show notes but i think that that neil young spirit of sort of wildness and sort of you know diy do it yourself and do what you want uh really infects no code and of course the other thing that comes into play here is the band is still at war with themselves vetter is 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 clearly not really reconciled to you know, letting anybody else in the band have any sense of what to do uh, with the uh, the albums and the direction that the band goes. He's really kind of insisting on being the leader. That's why people threaten to quit. But the result on No Code, I think, is magnificent. I will stand by this, that the first half of No Code is the best music that Pearl Jam ever put out. And if you could get rid of Smile, which I don't like at all, and then instead substitute Present Tense and Lucan, which I think are great songs, just flip them, because Lucan's like a minute long. Just literally alternate them, so Smile goes on to the second half, and Lucan and Present Tense go on to the first half. Then you have A, the best side of music that Pearl Jam ever did, and then B, you have a second side that nobody ever really needs to hear. And that's the problem with No Coat, that they stack too much of their music on the front. But how effective is it? It is so hard to over-appreciate a song like Sometimes. Vetter wrote it. It is the opposite. Pearl Jam always opened with loud rockers. You know, if they open with once, they open with go. They open with last exit. So what is the way they open no code? It's this very quiet ballad that just builds softly, builds softly, builds softly. Eddie is singing in this very kind of weedily thin, whiny voice. And then after it builds to a climax, it doesn't go back around to another chorus. It doesn't go back around to another verse. It just dies. It just sort of tails off into quietness. It's only two and a half minutes long. And then bam, hail, hail hits.
Hail Hail, of course, is the only traditional Pearl Jam rocker, I think, really on the album. Sort of the only one that has the classic verities of songs like Go or Animal or uh, you know, Even Flow or anything like that. But the ones that speak the most to me are uh, that trio of interesting ones uh, near the end of the f- first side. Who You Are, I'm surprised to hear Josh describe it as being not radio ready. Well, it's not radio ready if the only thing you're expecting to hear on the radio is sort of the old classic Pearl Jam style but it is a beautiful song I love the eastern tinges I love the tribal drumming from Jack Irons and by the way whenever the band tried to play this in the next song live in subsequent years without Irons in the band they've never really been able to pull it off because Irons just had a feel for these sorts of drum beats that Matt Cameron as good a drummer as he is never could bring to it off he goes again this is Eddie Vedder writing about himself this is Eddie Vedder saying, I'm a terrible friend. I'm a bad person. I'm a moody SOB, and I, I get lost in my own reveries and run off and, and ignore my friends, and then I come back and expect to be treated like I'm just the same old guy that I always was without paying attention to you know, how I've neglected the people who care about me. Again, very thoughtful and self-reflective lyric, but the true triumph of No Code and the reason I keep on like pushing this album on people as much as I can is in my tree in my tree is joy it is catharsis it is one of the happiest songs that pearl jam ever wrote it is one of the most transcendent songs that pearl jam ever wrote the only other comparison i can think of in their discography is given to fly off of the next album the same sort of i'm escaping to a another fantasy world a place where i can be on my own live in my own world be liberated from you know the drudgery and you know the, the, the horrible burdens of the everyday grind that I have to deal with, and it's the guitars on that thing. That's one of the things you have to remember. We think of Eddie Vedder as the lead songwriter in Pearl Jam. He's not. In My Tree was written by Stone Gossard and Jack Irons, who came up with that drum beat. Vedder came up with some of the music, but he's really only a guy who contributed the lyrics to that song. band was becoming far more collaborative and you see it on in my tree you would see it even more on the next album yield which i know scott is going to make a really impassioned argument for and then once scott is talking about how great yield is <laughs> i am going to immediately chime in to agree with everything he said uh thank you for the introduction yeah i you know yield might be my favorite pearl jam album and it's the one that brought me back to the band by and large and it's, I don't know if you guys have these albums. I, it's one of those albums that I can tell you exactly where I was when I realized how great a handful of these songs were. Um, In Hiding. In Hiding is one of Pearl Jam's great songs. Uh, we were on a family vacation in Washington, D.C., and we were in a hotel, and we had just woke up, and the rock station in D.C. played In Hiding. And I remember, I'm in bed and saying, you know, I've heard this a few times now. This is actually a really great song. Um 
uh, No Way, which uh, I don't think was ever released as a single, but XRT played it in Chicago. I was driving down uh, Ogden Avenue in Chicago, stopping for gas when uh, Bobby Scafish, one of my favorite uh, DJs, uh, played No Way. I'm like, you know what? No Way. This is a really good song. The double track, Eddie Vedder vocal in the chorus where he's kind of harmonizing with himself. That's a good track. Uh, uh, Wishlist. I actually played Wishlist over and over on my college radio station when it was released. And uh, I, remember, I remember playing it one day and said, you know, Wishlist, this is really good. Pearl Jam is writing good songs. I like this album. Yield is fantastic. Yield is, I, I, I think, still underrated by many people. And it's, again, just past that jumping off point. Or even though it's fantastic, a, a lot of people missed it. Brendan O'Brien's still there, so the production is fantastic. Jack Irons is still there, so the drumming is spot on. And it feels more like a collaborative effort uh, of, of the band coming back together after uh, a, a little a bit of, of, of friction the, the past uh, two records. Uh, Brain of Jay, fantastic kickoff track. And then the follow-up is one of my favorite Pearl Jam tracks, and I know it's one of Jeff's too. Faithful yeah. is fantastic. Go get Faithful to listen if you haven't heard it. And uh, the first single off the album, Give Him to Fly, isn't even one of my favorite songs on the album because, you know, there's the, it sounds a bit like Going to California from Zeppelin, and I wasn't the biggest Going to California fan, so they had it working against it. But those soaring verses and the way Vetter sings over the, over the guitars, Give Him to Fly works really well, too. Um, even the tracks that you'd say are more throwaway, like Pilot, well, it's kind of a throwaway track. I think it works. Um, Red Bar is one of the few Pearl Jam experimental tracks that I don't skip. It's got this yeah. kind of eastern groove to it. These speed shifts throughout it. I, I still like it. Low Light almost has a country feel to it, which is not uh, apparent on hardly any Pearl Jam tracks. And uh, going back to Wishlist real quick, two things about Wishlist. One is uh, I'm a grammar Nazi, and it bothers me that Eddie Vedder could not use the subjunctive when writing Wishlist because they should all be, they should all be I wish I were, not I wish I was. But secondly. <laughs> if you listen closely, so it's garbage. <laughs> if you listen closely to Wishlist, the very last audible line in the song, which is barely audible, and which people, if you're on the radio, wouldn't have heard because the DJ is going to talk over it or you're transitioning to a different song. But the very last line in it is, "I wish I was a radio song, the one that you one turned, that up. turned up." And after two albums of pushing people away and not wanting a celebrity and not wanting the spotlight, and I don't know if that is uh, is kind of irony on behalf of a veteran writing that lyric, or if it really... Oh, it has to be intentional. I would think so, right? I would think that's intentional, um, that that's, it's not really what they want, of course, but they put that right at the very end of the song that they would then release as a single and just got loads and loads of... Of airplay, I think Yield might be their most consistent album from, from start to finish. Uh, I think it's probably the most underrated album in their canon. Uh, I am just a huge fan of Yield. It is the Pearl Jam album I listen to most often, by far. I will say this. I have two criticisms of Yield. Uh, one of them is Push Me, Pull Me, and the other one is All Those Yesterdays, which is oh. another way of saying that the only thing you can say against Yield is the fact that it ends a little weakly. Like literally, they could have cut those last two songs off, and they would have had an album that was still good, forty minutes long. It would have ended with "In Hiding," which is a great way to end yeah, an album, yeah. and people uh, would be arguing that this is the greatest album they had ever put out. Fake news, man. Fake news. All right. Well, you get to your thing in a point. I'm going to say this. All right. Here is 
there's two two funny observations. Three. First of all, I think Brain of Jay is uh, maybe my favorite Pearl Jam rocker, pure rocker of all time. Mm. Brain of JFK really is what it is. Right. They, they didn't want to put JFK there in the title, so they call it Brain of Jay. Uh, but when he goes to that chorus, you know, the whole world will be listening soon. The whole world will be believing. Uh, that is one of the most effective. Uh, combinations of just pure riffing from Mike McCready, who wrote the, the, the music to the song, and, and Vetter's singing. It's just so powerful. Um, the other thing I want to say is that and, and God bless my wife, I love her because she's the one who made this observation to me. Uh, she wasn't familiar with Pearl Jam and I was just like, I think I was playing Rearview Mirror, uh, the, 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 the greatest hits album for her in the car one time when we were driving. And we got to give him to fly and she pointed out she grew up in the evangelical church here in uh, suburban Chicago and she's like, oh dude, that sounds like worship music. <laughs> and she was right! <laughs> give him to fly sounds like Sunday evangelical Christian worship music you would hear from the band and it's even more hilarious for the fact that the song is basically a Christ allegory obviously mm -hmm. uh, and so I just every time I hear given to fly now I can't help but just like think of myself in a room full of people who have their hands raised to the <laughs> ceiling and, you know, they're just like kind of get into the groove and communing with God. And it doesn't actually ruin the song at all for me because it's such a beautiful song. And, hey, I go to that church myself. But I laugh every time I hear it now because because Noel was so right about, yeah, that's Christian rock music by any other name. <laughs> one I want to talk about, and you mentioned it too, uh, Scott, is Faithful. It's so good. This is okay, this is going to sound like I'm damning Pearl Jam with faint praise. I am not damning Pearl Jam with faint praise when I say that what they were the best at is creating incredibly good mid-tempo rock songs. Yeah. That sounds boring, right? Because like you either want to be like punky and have lots of punky energy, or you want to be a quirky art rocker coming up with all sorts of fascinating constructions. But those weren't what Pearl Jam really specialized in. Yes, Hail Hail is great. Brain of Jay is great. Once is great. Those up-tempo rock songs, they could still really knock them out of the park every now and then. But what they were truly amazing at is stuff like Faithful. When you hit that opening chord, those just sort of light floating opening chords that just develop from there to Eddie's sort of like high – kind of airy vocal and then the band comes in and all the time it's just going at dunka 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 it never gets above that speed but it gets heavier and heavier and more purposeful and then it goes through the middle eight which is a really well-developed series of chords and then it goes right back into the i'm faithful you know we all believe we all believe chorus and it just sounds like an entire hurricane is hitting you straight in the face and it is incredibly powerful and incredibly satisfying sound
very few bands ever pulled this off. I think a lot of bands were too embarrassed to try to just be mid-tempo rockers, but Pearl Jam were just never afraid to be the who, and I think that's what saved them, that they were saying, this is what we do, and we do it well, and we're going to do it better than you have ever heard any group do it before, and on Faithful, as well as a couple of others we'll be getting to soon, my God, they bring it off in the most amazing way possible. I love Yield. I am right with you, Scott. I think this is one of their best albums. I mean, I agree. Yield is like, um, I think uh, Versus and Yield are the two um, albums by Pearl Jam that are the most friendly. If you just put, you know, press play at the start and go all the way to the end, mm-hmm. uh, there's not a lot of, there's, there's, I mean, Push Me, Pull Me, I think, you know, Jeff said it. it. It's, you know, it's kind of a throwaway song and I'm sure the band is aware of it. They've played it live a few times and it's, you know, it's, it's, to me, it's kind of like a little fun thing, but it's not, you know, a big song, but you know, Brain of Jay was left off of No Code, and I think it fits so perfectly with Yield. So I'm, you know, it makes it makes like such a great start. And then Given to Fly is, I think that was their first single off the album. And yep. Given to Fly is just such a great song, and it's it's a song they play almost every show. And it's just like the the way that the the build is just like live. It's so great, and the you know, it's just you know, to your point earlier about it feeling like church. It, it's just I, I think you know you hate to look at it that way, but you know I don't think it's a bad thing. <laughs> it works. Well, it's just weird when you're talking about Pearl Jam and then you're like, oh yeah, it feels like you know cause you hear that all the time when you go to shows. And I've had people. The first show I ever went to was in 1995, and my brother and I go and we sit down. And so I am um, 15 years old, and this guy, this older guy comes and he sits behind us. He's like, hey, is this your first? Or you know, we were talking to him. He goes, is this your first Pearl Jam show? I'm like, yeah. He goes, man, this is religion. And I'm like, okay. He's like, no, this is spiritual, man. And I'm like, okay. He's like, no, this is gonna, <laughs> this is gonna change you. And, and and my brother and I are like, how do we? A little scared at this point. You're like, yo, yeah. back yeah. off, dude. <laughs> yeah. And so I guess ever since then, I've always kind of had that like reluctance to to draw that kind of comparison. But you know, given to fly live is just such an amazingly yeah. uh, perfect song. And then. Um, in hiding is a great live song just because of the chorus. It's just like the whole, you know, and the crowd singing it. It's so great. Um, and then for me, I think one of my, my one of my favorite Pearl Jam songs, which at the time I actually thought was one of the more boring songs, is Low Light. Um, I don't know what it is about that song, but it's like such a great like song to like relax and ease into something with. For me, it's like uh, I don't know, like if you've had like a really rough day and you sit down and you, you just want to listen to something kind of like calming. I just I love playing that one. The one I'm gonna, uh, the one I would definitely fight you to the to the death on is all those yesterdays. I think that one is just a great song, and um, it's, it's actually my my wife's favorite song hmm. uh, of their whole catalog. And I, you know, I think it's one of those songs that's, you know, it's 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 kind of a forgotten one, um, just in a casual sense, just because it, you know, Yield is a great album. It's at the end. It's it's a slow song and all that. But I've always thought of that one as being just a really good. You know, song and they've got the good harmonies going and all that. And, um, but yeah, like front to back, um, Yield is just, it's so good. And, and, um, a couple of years ago, they played in Milwaukee 
and they actually played that front to back, which was the only time they've ever done a front to back. And that was you know, awesome. It was, and and it's funny because uh, that's my wife's favorite album. And um, the couple of shows earlier, they played in Mo- Moline, Illinois, and they did no code front to back. <laughs> and uh, so I got to see both those. And my wife did not go to Milwaukee because she had school the next day. And I remember I messaged her from the show, and I I, I had heard there uh, someone had saw the set list and and um, told me and. She was just like, you've got to be kidding me. Because it's like, you well, know. Was there of- any advance warning? Did they like, was it just a surprise that, hey, we're playing Yield front to back? Or was it telegraphed to fans in advance? It was a surprise. And, and it's funny because when they, they, um, they've only done it, I think they played the Avocado album front to back like in 2006. And I think they did 10 front to back like in the 90s. And then all of a sudden in, in Moline, we got there really early because we didn't know how long it would take. And we were, you know. So we get there and we're we're just kind of hanging out in the lobby to get our to pick up our tickets and all of a sudden every song they sound checked was from No Code and you're like uh oh yeah and I, <laughs> something's I, happening here I'm playing I'm open that never happens yeah and I still never thought anything of it I just remember I texted some of my friends who are fans and I was like man it's gonna be a No Code night and then all of a sudden you know they play sometimes into Hail Hail into Who Who You Are and you're like holy cow and then uh, you know a couple nights later they did Yield and and so there's no warning to it it's just uh, it's it's funny because I, you know, you you could watch the people kind of figuring it out like by the third, second, third, fourth song, you know, and and I think of all the albums for them to play front to back, I think Yield is one of the best ones because it's it's a you know most a lot of casual fans know it, but it's still like you know they don't play all those songs that often, so when they do it front to back, it's like a really unique thing, and and I thought it was like the greatest thing ever, and. Uh, you know, and, and most of those songs, you know, really work and, and the flow the flow of the, the whole album works. And so they did skip the uh, Red Dot song. They actually ah. they, they played that on the speakers as they came out onto the stage, which I guess would be the first clue that they were going to do it. But I don't think anyone, you know, thought anything of it. Yeah, it's not really a song that can be played, right? Yeah. I just want to also point out one other thing. This, this album represents Pearl Jam settling into like finally settling into like a well-adjusted adulthood. Uh, clearly, it, it, this is the album where they figured out a modus vivendi, uh, a way of working and living with one another. Vetter seemed to step back and not insist on being such a control freak, and it's mm-hmm. really telling that on this album, he only writes two of the songs. All right, he writes Wish List and he writes MFC. Those are both like great songs on this album, but like all the other stuff on the record is is contributed by McCready and Gossard with a couple of uh, MN shows up with Pilot and with Low Light. Um, But like you know, the big highlights of the album are like Brain of Jay, Faithful, Given to Fly. Those are Mike McCready numbers. Um, Vetter stepped back and said, "Listen, I'm gonna let you guys contribute as much as you want. Come in, write these songs. I'll work on them with you. I'll help them with you. I don't always." have to be in charge and i think that's the moment in which pearl jam sort of decided that we can survive for the long run yeah. i don't know if they were sitting this in them or the- not but i mean yeah mccready Raina jay and faithful and given to fly gossard did uh no way gossard was do the evolution which i don't think do we the mentioned evolution, yet right, yeah. gossard was in hiding. in hiding yeah i mean all those yeah. were from were from those two guitarists and those are just amazing songs so like this is why you realized if, if you 
you couldn't know this at the time, but looking back retrospectively, it's obvious that this is where they became a band that was gonna just stay together. They were they they figured out how to work and live with each other. They were in it for the long run, and I think that that sort of you know more laid back approach shows up on Benaro, which is the next album they put out in 2000. Um, they had put out a live album in between called Live on Two Legs. It's a good album, but it's probably not worth wasting our time on because there's so much to discuss. A lot of people think Benaro is a really kind of compromised album. That you know, I think that there. A lot of people say like half of this is really good and then half of it is just sort of kind of, you know, experiments that don't work, sludgy anthems. I'm a big fan of Benaro. I think it's uh, quite underrated. And I think that there are songs in here that do not quite work. I do not like God's Dice. I think that uh, uh, Grievance and Rival are just kind of a bit gormless. But I really like the fact that they, when their songs fail on this album and on the next album, they're still taking a lot of chances. The stuff is still exciting, and even the songs that don't quite work fail to work in interesting ways, as opposed to just being generic. Uh, and then the other thing is that to affirmatively praise Minoro, I think it has some of their best music. I think Break or Fall is one of the best album openers the band had. One of the best, you know, straight up, you know, fifty miles a mile, uh, fifty miles a second rockers that they ever did. Uh, but then, in particular, the one that I really want to praise is Light Years, which is again, uh, you know, Eddie Vedder uh, doesn't really often get praised for his lyrics. The band doesn't get enough praise for its ability to write mid-tempo rockers. Both of those things come together in Light Years, which is a song. Uh, that they wrote about a friend of theirs who died of cancer. And it is, again, starts with just a very slow, simple drumbeat. And you think, well, this is just going to be as, as boring as watching the paint peel off the walls. But then the guitars slowly come in. Then Vetter starts singing that verse. And then all of a sudden, by the time they get to the chorus, um, you know, he says, and wherever you've gone and wherever you may go, I, I'm you. I get goofy. I get very emotional when I think about this. I think about the people who I've lost in my life. And I think about the way that, that, that Eddie sings that song. And I think about the way the band puts that song across. And I am just impressed, not only that they wrote it, but that they had the courage to just play it straight and to actually put that into a beautiful, thoughtful, moving ballad that to me remains one of the five greatest things that they ever recorded. chip in a little here because uh, these next two albums um, are probably my, my least favorite portion of the band's career. So this this and Ryan Act, which is next. I, I My problem, I think, with this album is the band is 
is doing they're doing things that are not their strengths and not even close to their strengths. Uh, what, what are they skilled at? What do they do best? And they're not following through on that. It's very atmospheric for for a lot of the album. Uh, I don't mind, you know, when 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 they slow things down, um, but I think it doesn't work as well here. One of the songs I do like the best is "Of the Girl." Uh, there's a lot going on in that tune. It's a Gossard song that I, I think he actually also wrote the lyrics for. See, that to me is a very atmospheric song, though. That's them taking a chance and really bringing it off. That one works. <laughs> also, yeah, but the other times they fail. Okay, uh, gotcha. there's yeah, but I mean, uh, change producers on this album too. Uh, I think the T is silent. Uh, Chad Blake is the producer for for this album. And, and Eddie Vedder was going through some writer's block, uh, which is why there are what I think five or six songs that are where the lyrics are done by. Uh, not Eddie Vedder, either uh, Ament or, or or Gossard did did a bunch of lyrics on this album too. I'm just not, I'm, I'm just not a, a, a huge fan. Outside of a few highlights, I do think of the girl is probably the highlight for for this album. Yeah, I, for me, I, I think binaural is just one of the, you know it, it's a. Uh, I, I love binaural. I think it's definitely not as you know front to back ready as not ready, but front to back it doesn't flow as well as Yield. It's kind of to me, it's a little bit more like where you got like the up tempo, and then it goes down, and up and down. But like "Parting Ways," I actually really like. Is I've always liked as a song. You know, most of these songs didn't really get much attention. You know, you know when you think about like radio play and all that, they nothing as it seems was their first single. Um, they released Light Years, and I don't, you know, I don't think they got a ton of you know airplay for it. It was kind of a under the radar record for them. They did a huge tour for it, but at the same time, it, it didn't have that feel of the Vitology days or even you know Yield and No Code. And, you know, I actually really like the album. You know, there's some songs, obviously, that, like, you know, one of the, actually, one of the songs that a, a ton of the real diehard Pearl Jam fans love is Sleight of Hand. Yes. And for whatever reason, that's one of my least favorite Pearl Jam songs out of any album. And I don't like just, it either. I just said, I don't like it. <laughs> it's just so funny because they'll play it at a show and people go nuts because they don't play it often. And then all of a sudden I'm like, <laughs> oh, I wish it had been something else, you know? And they're like, how could you say that? I'm like, it, to me, that just feels like a song that, it's just a car and idol that just goes down the street doing nothing, you know, but right. people love, you know, people love it. So, you know, it's, it's, it's like, why couldn't they have played insignificance instead? Now that's a good song. <laughs> well, yeah, it is. You know, and it's funny too, because that's one of the things about Pearl Jam that I think will always cement their legacy is just the fact that when you go to a show, they'll play like say 31 songs, 32 songs, whatever. And, you know, it, it really outside of a core of maybe six songs, you're going to hear a lot of different stuff. And, and yeah. so, there are parts of the show, especially in the first encore, well, they'll, they usually will play a few, maybe three different acoustic or, you know, really ballad type songs. And so, yeah, to your point, you're always like, man, uh, you know, I know they played Slight of Hand, but why couldn't they have played something like Parting Ways or All Those Yesterdays or... Why you is know, it thumbing my way here? I'd like to hear that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so you get a lot of you get a lot of that, which is actually, you know, it's one of the things that's really cool. And in, in a weird way, it's like sometimes when you go to shows, you feel like a like a collector, you know, you're like, okay, I've been to all these shows and I've never seen these handful of, of songs. Right. And then when they play it, you get really excited. And 
and, and I always laugh because you, you meet people where, you know, they'll, they'll play a song that, and, and they get really excited. I'm like, I thought you didn't like that song. I'm like, well, I don't, but I've never heard it live before. <laughs> this you song know? is crap, but I'm so excited yeah. to hear it live. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's just so funny because I actually, you know, I, I don't want to jump around too much, but like Dirty Frank is a song that was a, right. you know, a 10, 10 a beat. A B-side from, from 1991. Yeah, right. and I would love to hear it personally. And my wife is always like, that song is crap. Why would you want to hear it? And I'm like, I think part of it is because I actually do like it. It was a song that I got when I first started collecting import CD singles and all that. But then it's also just, you know, it, it, there is that part of it where it's like, I've never heard it. They don't play it much. I think it'd be fun if they played it. Um, anyways, that, you know, that's a whole, and that's part is, Josh, this is actually a really great opportunity to briefly, we're going to, there's no way we can give this full justice, but just briefly talk to us about you have been to if i remember correctly you said you've been to something like 70 pearl jam shows is that right yeah i think i i don't know the exact count i think it's around like it's in the mid 70s and then if you add in the uh the eddie solo shows it's over 80 so i've had your bona fides are well proven this is <laughs> you have no money to justify yourself you bought any better a new car the, at reason some point. I, the reason i bring it up now is that it was during this tour the binaural tour and then the tour that they also did subsequently for riot act where they did this unprecedented thing where they commercially released every single concert that they performed during their tour. Literally every single one was made available on CD. In fact, still available. You can buy them you know, commercially, or if you like more surreptitious means, you can find ways to torrent them. You can get every darn show on these entire tours. It made it uh, – it was a dream come true for hardcore Pearl Jam fans, but it almost became a joke for like, you know, uh, Tyros, people like me, in fact, who were just breaking in, although eventually I ground my way through and found out the best of them to, to figure out what it was. Do you think these two poors are particularly great and justified the full coverage? Or uh, do you think that this is just one of these things that is truly for the hardcore fans only? No, I, I you know, I think to your point earlier, you know, they've got, I think, 70, 70 shows on the 2000 tour. Remember? It's either 70 and 2000 or 2003. And so obviously even the diehard, there are diehard fans that have the entire both tours on their, you know, hard drives and all that. But I mean, really, you're going to pick out a best of, and you're going to know it's there's certain shows and all that. But yeah, I think they do. They, you know, and, and not only that, but um, the, a lot of these songs, they just are so much better live. And, and so with those, with the bootleg releases, it was just such a cool thing. Like uh, I think it, for both both of them, but I think in 2000, since they just started doing it, when you were leaving the shows, they would hand you a postcard, and so you could go online, you ordered it, and I think it was a, you know in your mailbox two two weeks later or something, which is really cool. Amazing. Yeah, and at the time, I mean, nobody was doing it, and it was great for them because they were one of the more heavily bootlegged bands, and so you'd go to these record shows, and they I think they usually charge twenty dollars per disc, so for a Pearl Jam show, it's usually forty dollars. And and they got no cut of that. And then instead, you go online after the show. You order. I think they were twelve ninety nine, and you've got you know a, a double CD three, set. Two, you're, two or three CD set, and it's perfect sound quality. Yeah, and, perfect yeah. quality. And, and you know, again to your point, um, it, the way they covered it so well is like you know if you look at it, if they play like say New York or Chicago, and they do two nights, and each show they'll play a very different set and so if you go to those both you order the two sets you've got a really wide range of their catalog live in a couple of shows and it's you know it's a really cool memory of, of being there and and so i think that's i think that will always be one of their biggest legacies is their live you know their, their, the whole live 
atmosphere they created and, and the way they were able, you know, I can't tell you how many bands I've seen multiple times and they'll play one or two different songs, you know, like mm-hmm. they'll play say 22 songs and the next night they'll play 20 of the same songs in two different <laughs> ones, you know? Right. And, um, and I, you could go to like, like Pearl Jam played Wrigley field and Fenway last year and they play like 32 songs a night and they might repeat six of them. You know, it's, it's pretty amazing. Well, and they can do that too because of the, the, the consistency in band members. And that's a huge yeah. reason that they can go back to anywhere in their catalog any night. And everybody's played those songs, you know, however many times on the tour immediately following the album. They know it. They don't have to relearn and, and, uh, and you know, rehearse those songs up uh, if they want to bring them out of the closet. We didn't yeah. even mention the fact that Pearl Jam, in between Yield and uh, Binaural, got a new drummer. They, they, the yeah. drummer, drummer chair in Pearl Jam is like the drummer chair in Spinal Tap. They, <laughs> they keep on, you know, sort of uh, spontaneously combusting on stage or something happens to them. Uh, but Jack Irons... Uh, didn't want to tour yield kind of i don't know just got sick of the whole grind and so they they brought in matt cameron of course matt cameron for uh real grunge heads they'll know that matt cameron was originally the drummer for soundgarden and he has been pearl jam's drummer ever since that he is in fact the longest tenured drummer in the band uh, by far at this point and so you know one other thing i would like to say is like or a question i'd like to throw to both of you is uh, of all the pearl jam drummers (laughs) that are out there so i guess there's dave cruzen if you want to count him dave abruzzisi um, uh, or Abruzzese, I don't know how to pronounce it, uh, Jack Irons or uh, Matt Cameron, which is the best Pearl Jam drummer? And it's not fair just to say Cameron because he's been around the longest. <laughs> my my choice will be Irons. I am a big fan of Jack Irons. I love the tribal stuff that he brought both to uh, No Code and to Yield. I think that he had a little extra something different that the band never quite recaptured, even though Cameron is a fantastic drummer in his own right. What do you guys think? Uh, I'm actually I'm, I'm with you. I, I like Irons the best. He's he's the tightest. He's the most propulsive of the uh, the drummers that Pearl Jam had. And and you know, listening to the albums in which he's featured, you know, he made the drums a part of the music. They were they're higher in the mix. They're they're a part of the songwriting almost. And uh, listening back yesterday to Madero um, uh, and and I think Ryan X specifically, those two specifically, you know, when Cameron's on board, drums are far deeper in the mix. They're not as much a part of what's going on in the songs. And so I think they both appreciated and realized what Irons brought to the band. And, and some of his contributions on No Code are fantastic, and he sounds great on Yield. I think he was uh, the best, I guess, the best, and not to say Cameron's not good. I, I think Irons was the best fit for the band. Yeah, I- I think that's actually, and you know, the thing about Jack Irons is just the fact that by all accounts, he was like the guy that stabilized everything at the time. And so to a certain extent, you almost pick him just because without him, you just don't know (laughs) if there is that final blow up that just ends it. It, it, You know, very easily, if you believe all the stories that have come out, you know, over the last 20 years, there were times in that 94, 1994, 95 area where it literally, you know, they were all at odds with each other and you know, by all accounts, Jack Irons came in and found a way to kind of, you know, guide them through that and then um, get them, you know, basically to Matt Cameron because he didn't want to, well, you know, it sounds like he didn't want to do all of the extensive touring. Um, I personally, I think uh, Dave Abrazizi is, I think, one of the, the better drummers just in the sense that, like, he live was just a monster. Um, and I and I guess part of me feels bad just at the way he was let go. You know, he was kind of let go at a kind of let go for not fitting in, which is yeah. kind of the weird part. Yeah. Like Pearl, Eddie Vedder was still in that kind of like you're a dick because you're different than me mood early in his. I guess he's kind of still in his twenties. I don't know. It feels like he got a he got a bad rap 
that's the thing, and that, and that's the that's the reason. It's like you know, all of a sudden you think about, it and you know, you go from being in this, you know, one of the top bands in the world, and all of a sudden you get you know invited out to coffee, and you're told you're out of the band. <laughs> And, because you bought a sports car, essentially. Yeah, they, yeah. It was like I think there were things like he bought a sports car. He, you know, um, I believe he was trying to sign an endorsement deal with like uh, one of the drum companies, and they were they were offended by the sponsorship stuff. And then um, he wanted to, you know, he really wanted to make the band more commercial, and of course, the band wanted to be less commercial. And you know, I get it if you've got a constant butting of heads, but at the same time, it just felt like, you know, the the guy was with them through the some of their you know or probably most of their their biggest years coming out and then all of a sudden it's like yeah okay thanks for that but you're out and uh so i guess in that regard i feel bad for him but you know and and matt cameron i think is really good in the sense that he can write songs too you know he doesn't just play drums he writes songs he can play guitar and so he's brought you know some songs to the band over the years which i think has been a really cool thing um yeah that a lot of ba- other bands don't have. And I know he did that with Soundgarden as well. So, you know, Matt, Matt Cameron, I, you know, in a lot of ways is more than just a drummer, which is pretty cool. He brought a lot of songs to the next album, actually. Riot Act brought up some pretty good ones, including Crop Duster, which I like. And that, of course, brings us to Riot Act. This, I think, you know, I, I get why Scott says that that Riot Act and Binaural are kind of two sides of the same coin because they, they are albums that have a split personality. I think that, you know, half of them are really, really, you know, solid uh, very excellent music and then half of them are it's not vitology bad but it's mediocre uh my my secret shameful confession when it comes to riot act is that bush leaguer i like that song (laughs) i think that's actually a really good song it's a really interesting song the politics obviously i disagree with but i like the music and i think it's a fairly interesting piece um but for me my my number one thought <clears throat> about Riot Act is this, is that it contains the, the last truly great song that Eddie Vedder wrote by himself. And the name of that song is Can't Keep. Can't Keep is the opening song on Riot Act. It is this, it's got this really great, it's one of my favorite uh, Cameron drum tracks is kind of a, a shuffle beat that can relentlessly propulses onwards. Uh, but then when you listen to uh, Eddie Vedder's original ukulele version of it, you realize it was actually driven by the way that Vedder wrote the song. He wrote the song on ukulele and on a solo album, he does a, a solo version of it that I think is really quite compelling. Uh, this is one of the most sort of wonderful, swooping, cosmic melody lines that Vedder ever wrote. I love the guitar sounds that McCready and Gossard yeah. put into it in the background. This is my last truly classic Pearl Jam song. They've done a lot of great music since then, but you know we have to name five of these things, and this is this is my number five. This is uh, one of the all-time greats from this band. And see, I, um, I, 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 was, yeah. I don't love Riot Act, as I mentioned, but I think a, a different Vetter song on this album is probably the last truly great Pearl Jam, and that's this, uh, the single, which is I Am Mine. 
Um, I am I. I'm, I'm only. I'm only kind of middling on I am I. I like it an awful lot. It, it was written after the festival tragedy. You know, nine, right. I think nine dead, fifteen injured, and by all accounts, that impacted the band quite a bit. I mean, expected, of course. Nine, nine of your fans. Yeah, that and uh, Love Boat Captain are both about the uh, the tragedy. Yeah, right? but this is one of. The, I think might have been the first song he wrote after uh, that tragedy, and it's it's pretty classic Pearl Jam. Strong lyrics. From from Vetter, I, I know I'm bored, I know I'm die. The in between is mine. Love that. I love that line. Strong well, hooks. Can I just say? Go ahead. Can I just also? Oh, I'm sorry, Scott. I pardon me. I just say strong saying? hooks. Good melody. You know, I, I think I Am Mine actually is, is the last uh, truly great. It's, 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 it's on my five, uh, spoiler alert. But uh, so I, mean, I, I, I put think there are list. other really great songs on the thing. Green Disease is hugely underrated as a song. I think Love Book Captain is great. Uh, the one that was a single that I don't really care for is Save You. I think that's pretty generic as far as like Pearl Jam rockers go. Uh, but the one thing that frustrates me about Riot Act is like, why on earth is Thumbing My Way not the album concluder? That should have been the last song on this album. That is one of my favorite quiet acoustic ballad moments of the entire Pearl Jam discography. It's another Vetter solo song, uh, probably um, his second to last great song. I love it, and I just I just wish Riot Act had ended on that moment as opposed to All or None, which I, I frankly I have no time for. What do you think, Josh? Actually, I, lo- I love All or None, so it's kind of ah. funny. And I'm not I'm not a huge Stumbling My Way fan, so that, you know it's kind of a it, it's of course it's always, for courses. I know it's always weird, and I think Riot Act for me is probably one of my least favorite, and it's not for any particular reason. It's just it feels like one of those albums where there are some songs I really like, and then there's a lot of songs that I don't necessarily like, like Get Right, Help Help, um, you know. Uh, Crop Duster I like, uh, Ghost I like, but you know they're they're you know I'm a, not really gonna miss them too much. Um, I really do like All or None. Um, I like I Am Mine, and I, I love the the guitar solo at the end, just kind of the way that the song ends. I've always liked. Um, and Bushleaguer, you know, to your point, I actually love the music of Bushleaguer, and I love the chorus. I have never been a huge fan of like spoken word verse type stuff. So I, it's like I wish they that would, even if it was political, I wish he could have sung through that because I think. It's a great song musically. Um, you know, Love Boat Captain I've always liked a lot and, you know, kind of the whole getting through the the tragedy and all that. And Ark, Ark is, you know, it's a real short little thing, but, um, you know. I like those sw- experimental tracks. I know I know Scott has no time for them, but I like Ark. <laughs> yeah, and, and I think, you know, the Ark, it was, you know, the whole thing was that it was, um, you know, meant to be, you know, some, you know, a form of grieving after the, you know, after the tragedy and, when they did their tour for Riot Act, he played, you know, they did ARC at nine shows, you know, one for each of the, the, the people who had, who had died. And, you know, he came out and he brought like this little, uh, you know, loop machine with him. And, you know, he recorded all the tracks live and, you know, at the time and, you know, played them over each other. And um, I remember at the time when he did it, it was just really cool because you're just standing there and you can't really hear a lot of it because he's, you know, he's doing it with headphones on and stuff. And then all of a sudden they play and it's just like this really cool sounding um you know, 
harmony that's coming through and, and actually for whatever re- I think it was because of the, the kind of the personal nature of everything with the song but they did not include those on the bootlegs they released really um but they do I think it's on there's an Eddie Vedder solo DVD and I think Ark is on there because he also did it at a lot of the solo shows and it's really cool with the solo shows because again he spends all this time layering and layering and layering all the vocals over each other and, and then once it's done it just sounds really good um, but yeah, I mean, Riot Act, I, I like Riot Act. I think Riot Act was an album that turned a lot of people off to them uh, just because it wasn't quite as, like, classic Pearl Jam. But, you know, like you said, they, they take chances on things, and when they work, they work, and when they don't, they're not as good. But for me, I still take I still take Riot Act over a lot of bands that are out there, so it's certainly not a criticism of the album. It's just not one of my favorites. That brings us, of course, to the last three albums of Pearl Jam's career. And it may sound strange to treat them all of a piece, but I guess I think it's justified. In fact, by the way, Josh just wrapped up the discussion of Riot Act there, which is that say what you will about Binaural and Riot Act. Uh, When they were great, I thought they were transcendent. When they were bad, I thought they were pretty damn bad. Um, Then you have three albums, the so-called Avocado album in 2002. That's the self – or rather in 2006 um, called Pearl Jam, but it has a picture of an avocado split in in half on the cover. That's how most people know it. Then there's Backspacer in 2009, and then there's Lightning Bolt, their most recent one in 2013. Um, These three albums – I, I found myself listening to them again recently. They are, and I confess this, the Pearl Jam albums that I have listened the least to uh, because I think I always in my mind sort of psychically cut a chord with the end of the epic years, um, sort of mm-hmm. where Rearview Mirror, the greatest hits, came out. I was like, all right, bam, you know, Man of the Hour comes out, and then now we're into something else, sort of <clears throat> the late, dusky period of Pearl Jam's career. But I've come back to them recently, and in particular in the last few days when we uh, set up this show, and I find myself surprisingly impressed by this music. But I also agree there's a qualitative difference between it. This stuff is all really good. I think the, the one that's the most compromised is the Avocado album, but Backspacer and Lightning Bolt in particular are really solid records. What they lack, however, is risk. This is perhaps a chance... Uh, perhaps related to the fact that they've taken a lot more time between records at this point. So they're not doing that thing where they have to put out an album every one year, two years. They're just saying, whenever we're ready to do something, we're going to do something. They have that luxury now because they've become a touring act that can be sustained by that massive throng of fans, just like Josh Jordan, who will go see them anytime (laughs) they're in town. They're a guaranteed ticket, and that's a great place for a band to be. So they only go into the studio and record an album when they're ready. That gives them the opportunity to sort of really take their time pruning and, you know, sculpting their songs and also weeding out the weakest material. So you get albums that are, every one of them is really consistent, and they're all like on that good 7 out of 10 level, but there are very few songs on these records, um, other than a few, which I'll be happy to mention, that, that rise above that. Uh, but on the other hand, there are, there's nothing that, that falls, there are no more bugs. There's no more Eddie Vedder <laughs> playing the accordion. There's no more, hey, Foxy Mop Handle, Mama, that's me. So it's a trade-off. I do think, in general, these last three albums, these ones bringing up to the present day, are pretty underrated. I think Backspacer in particular, you guys, anybody who listens to this show and has listened to my, my ethos of music knows I love short albums. Backspacer is a 37-minute album. Yep. It's the shortest Pearl Jam ever got. I love it when a band just says, here are our songs. 
we don't feel compelled to add anything more to them. Take it, go in peace with God. I like Backspacer for that reason. But I think all three of these albums have a lot of things to recommend them, even if they don't rise to some of the earlier heights. Um, I guess we'll start with Avocado. Uh, Scott or Josh, which of you wants to go first? Uh, I'll take that one. Cause I, of, of the three, I uh, I think this one is good. I think it's damn good, the, uh, the, the self-titled uh, Avocado album. There is... Um, uh, there's a, it took four years off after uh, Riot Act before before this album came out. I think the rest or the time away, whatever, did them very good. This is an album with I, it's. There's more energy to it. The songwriting is is leaner. Uh, there's some big fat riffs on some of these songs, which help propel the the music forward. And, and the music is 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 excellent. There's a lot of focus on, on a lot of Eddie Vedder's lyrics through the years. This is the best musically sounding album, I think. Uh, I guess, I guess, I guess since Yield, uh, and those first three tracks, Life Wasted is greatly off track. The single Worldwide Suicide, and then Comatose. Uh, those first three tracks just burst out of the album. I think they're fantastic. Parachutes uh, near the middle uh, slows things down. Acoustic uh, guitar and, and a slower number that works very well. Big wave later on. You know, it's about as transparent as can be. Eddie Eddie Vedder's a surfer guy, and and big waves about a a big wave. But uh, I think the Avocado album again, a fresh listen in preparation for the show. Better than I even remember it being the first time I heard it. It's it is damn good it's not classic era it's not better than you know yield but it's a really good i think it's the best of these of these last three uh backspacer jeff you mentioned how well pearl jam does mid-tempo rock songs and it's true and there's two right near the center here um uh what is it um uh, unthought known and the, and the one right before it, which I don't have at the tip of Amongst my tongue. Amongst the Waves. Amongst the Waves. Both those yeah. back-to-back. Happy surfing song! Yeah. I love it. <laughs> excellent, excellent mid-tempo rockers. And I'm sure Eddie would not want me to say this, but when I see and, and listen to Unthought Known, I always have Donald Rumsfeld in the back of my mind with his, you know, there are knowns <laughs> yes, and known yes, unknowns known and unknown and unknown unknown unknown, right? and all that. <laughs> that's, that's what I think about. <laughs> And Lightning Bolt Solid too. The Pearl Jam's at the stage of their career where virtually everything they put out is going to be called, hey, look, it's a return to basics. It's Pearl Jam in classic form. That's just the most the, interesting album yeah, since X. That's just the pattern they're on, and Lightning Bolt kind of continues that pattern. There's some there's some good stuff. Sirens is a good song. Um, Sleeping by Myself is late on the album. It might be one of the brightest songs they've ever put. And just the, the way it sounds, the way the lyrics interact with the music, it's a bright upbeat kind of song and I think um, especially in Lightning Bolt Mike McCready is playing very very well it's excellent uh, guitar parts from McCready and Lightning Bolt I think they're all solid I think the Avocado album is is the best of the three um, but they know what they're doing at this point they just you know they know what they're doing yeah, I, I think that's fair. I mean, I, you know you get to a point like you said and they're all doing side projects they all have, most a lot of them have kids now it's tough to to tour constantly to record constantly and i think that they're at a point where they're comfortable just saying hey if we want to do one every three or four years i mean uh lightning bolt came out four years ago now so and they're not even recording yet so you're kind of 
waiting for new music, but you know that that's the new the new pace for them and going album by album. I think Avocado is one of those albums when it came out, a lot of people were turned off by. I'm not entirely sure, you know, what the reasons were. It's like you said, it's it's kind of a back to basics. They're not trying to do too much. And, um, you know, I've always been a fan of Life Wasted. I thought it, that's a good song live too. It just sounds yeah. great. It's very punchy. It's, you know, just like a really nice, fast moving song. Um, Inside Job is a song that I never was a huge fan of. I like uh, that song. I think it, that's actually one of their best closing tracks. It's a great, it's a great closing track. And uh, last year when they played at Wrigley Field, they had Steve Gleason there, and um, Steve Gleason came out on stage, and and obviously he he has like no movement left, but he can can communicate through um, the 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 screen that he has, mm-hmm. and he gave a speech before they played Inside Job because that's his favorite Pearl Jam song, and I think that was like literally one of those things where everybody in the entire stadium, entire Wrigley Field, is like, huh? you know. How did it get so dusty in here, you know? <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's it just like it was dead silence. And, um, it, you know, it's one of those things where, you know, again, it's, you know, you've got the music which stands by itself, but then sometimes there's there's something that connects you to it. That And, and so for me, that I, I, like, will never listen to that song the same way again. I thought that was such a, move, right. a moving thing. Um, and, you know, and then there's, like, uh, Gone, which is a song that doesn't get a lot of play, and I think that that's a good song. And, and um, you know, I... I was telling Jeff about that there's a you know a demo version where it's just Eddie solo I think it's probably what he gave to the band you know and that that's a great recording of it and then you know backspacer you've got unthought no and you've got I always, I really like the song force of nature um which is not a song most people know too much of um on backspacer and you know it's it's a short album and it's pretty fast moving it's you know I like it it's not one of their best but you know it like you said it's it back to basics it's good it's better than a lot of other bands and i'm I'm happy with that and um and then finishing up with lightning bolt i actually was really happy with it when it came out because again you, you just don't know what you're gonna get at this stage you don't know what kind of music they're still gonna produce and what they're gonna keep for the band instead of their side projects and um infallible is one of my favorite songs yes. um really a, it's one of the songs i've listened to the most since the record came out Somehow. You know, and then there's even the slow songs like Yellow Moon uh, is a really cool song. Um, Pendulum, I like it. You know, and, and those are songs where the first time you heard it, you're like, eh. Then you listen to it a few times, and you're like, I really, you know, I, I really like these songs. And, and uh, Getaway is, I think, a great song um, to start the record with. And, and um, you know, so overall, yeah, I think 
you know, they're, they're good records and, you know, for what they have been able to do throughout their career and to keep it going and to be able to come back every few years and record, I think, you know, says a lot and it says where they're at. And, you know, I think if you're a fan of Pearl Jam, I think you gotta be happy with that because, you know, a lot of bands, I think by this point would be long, long burned out. And uh, it's good. They have been able to do it in a way where they at least appear to be happy with the process and happy with where they are and, and, and comfortable with where they are too. You know, you, you figure, you know, even Eddie, I think at this point, he he still probably can't go out in public without being mobbed, you know? <laughs> and um, so I think to be able to kind of be comfortable with that and be able to kind of deal with that. Whereas, you know, in the nineties, I think he had, you know, he had people trying to drive into drive through brick walls to get to his house and stuff. So, you know, it's, it's definitely different, I think for him, but yeah, I, you know, they're good albums. They're, it's a, Hopefully they've got more left in them, but you know they they all stand out on on their own pretty good. I want to say that it sounds to people listening here, especially people who aren't familiar with these last three albums, with the, with the Avocado, Backspacer, and Lightning Bolt, that we're damning them with faint praise. Like, yeah, they're pretty good. Like, yeah, it's not so bad. The fans enjoy it. They're significantly better than that. It's really worth pointing this out. These are not just good if you're a fan albums. These are legitimately good albums and in fact they're good in a way that you could not count on a lot of other Pearl Jam albums being in the sense that there is no song on any one of these albums that's really going to let you down in a way that like oh Christ I have to listen to a seven minute long sonic collage yay this is uh, a waste of every second of my life that I spent listening to it nothing like that these are actually really good albums Uh, it's just that there's no corduroy on them. There's no mm-hmm. can't keep on them. There's there's nothing like light years. But right. there are songs like Gone, which I agree with Josh, is, is by far the best song on, on the Avocado album. And I think probably makes my top ten, not my top five, but my top ten Pearl Jam songs. That's a really great rock song. And it's very creative. And it goes through all sorts of interesting developments and changes in a way that you would have expected a, a classic song from Yield or No Code to have done. No one thinks to but they will someday feel like a question is for me and the answers are I will be what I could be once I get out of this town don't give it the credit that it's due because it comes from that period where Pearl Jam sort of became a dad rock band. Deserves better than that. Same thing with Backspacer. There's a song on Backspacer called Johnny Guitar. I love that song. It's probably the most interesting thing that they have written, um, even more so than Gone. I'd say the most interesting thing they've written since 2002. It's almost like a feels like a Graham Parker song or an Elvis Costello song in a way, the way it's structured. very, very good rock song with some really kind of creative uh, singing by Vetter on the on the Vox there too, and then Lightning Bolt, uh, the title track, and Infallible are just great songs. Uh, that uh, Sleeping by Myself is the other one I would mention from Lightning Bolt. Um, but again, I can't really honestly sit there and say to you that the rest of the songs of the album you're going to dislike. What I can say about them, which this is damning with faint praise, is that they're consistently adequate 
that's the problem, and I think maybe it's unfair to Pearl Jam to hold them uh, to the standard that they achieved during the 90s and the early 2000s of just getting really out there into some pretty fascinating and daring and crazy and emotionally committed stuff by saying that, yeah, they're still pumping out really great 7 out of 10, 8 out of 10 albums. Um, they're not making 9 out of 10s or 10 out of 10s anymore. And it's probably fair to say that they're not going to because they've settled into a groove. But they still make good music. I mean, I literally was listening to this stuff uh, just, just the last few days and thinking to myself, man, if I went to see them in concert and they played like, you know, Sleeping by Myself, I'd go crazy. <laughs> I'd really, really be excited to hear this, man. If they played Infallible, I'd be screaming my lungs out. This is a great song. I would probably sound awesome live. And in fact, Josh, you could probably tell me that it does sound awesome live because I'm sure you've seen them play it live. Um, that's a compliment that really needs to be considered because Pearl Jam have, have sort of kind of become a cult band from being a sort of world-relevant band, but they have not become a mediocre band. They have become a really good, really solid band that knows what it is they want to do and knows how to deliver what their fans want to hear without compromising themselves or selling themselves out, which is why I like the fact that they take this much time between their albums these days because although the stuff that they put out, you know, it's not Better Man and it's not In My Tree anymore, it's still really good stuff that you will never find yourself saying, boy, I really wish I wasn't having to listen to this. You'd be like, man, this is really good. I'm glad this is on. And if you ever found yourself in a concert hall or it was being played, you'd be like, I am having a great time. Pearl Jam has still managed to deliver that, and it's been since 1991 that they have done it. I am frankly in awe of their consistency in that regard. And the fact that they managed to right their ship uh, at, at a moment where it looked in the mid to late 90s where it might just turn over capsize um, – this is, I say, the greatest band to come out of the Seattle scene. It's a controversial thing to say. Everybody wants you to say that Nirvana was the greatest band. But Pearl Jam, if nothing else, beats them on longevity alone and consistency and, and maybe you know, force of personality as well. Mm -hmm. This is the band that when I want to kind of conjure memories of my youth and what that era and what that scene meant to me, I consistently return to, and I'm just very grateful for the fact that I still have these songs to remind me of all the great music that they contributed to rock during that era. And I, I think to you know, just to piggyback onto that, you know, you look at the last few albums, and they aren't commercial successes, but at the same time, there are a lot of songs on each of the albums that you know when they play them, they sound great live. Everybody's into the songs, so it's not corduroy. But at the same time, you know, you've got like a song on Lightning Bolt. You know, um, Sirens is a song that I think some people kind of hate because it sounds kind of poppy on the album. But it's got like a really nice, you know, when they play it live, they've got a really nice sing-along. And Pendulum is a great opener. Um, you know, and so each of those albums have, and Lightning Bolt's a great song live that, they, you know, they typically play, I think, most most shows. So, you know, they, they, they've been able to craft uh, almost like a, a live concert experience. And I hate to use the word experience because it kind of cheapens the whole thought here but you know they what they've been able to do i think as a band is they've kind of taken their music which is obviously speaks for itself but they've made it you know such a like a destination to go see their shows and and you know you do you run into you know it's funny my wife comes with me to these shows sometimes i mean not not as many as we used to since we have since we have a kid now and it's just so funny because I'll, I'll talk to people she goes who, who was that and i'm like 
Oh yeah, that's that's a uh, that's a guy from Germany I met at some shows, and then you know a little later. <laughs> this is how I am with Radiohead fandom, by the way. It's it's, yeah. our, it's our international secret secret handshake. Yeah, it's so funny though. You know, and also someone else come up like, oh, who's that? I'm like, oh, you know, I I hung out with them at, at the Fenway shows over the summer. He actually lives in Aurora. You know, I didn't know him before this, but we both you know he lives 20 minutes away, and and so you know it's amazing, um, you know what the you know, and I hate being like one of those people that's like, oh, you know, the band their words speak to me and it changes my life. Cause I, you know, and, and that's true for a lot of people. It's just, I think for Pearl Jam, for me, it's just been, they've always put up good music. They've always, I think they've always really tried to do the right thing. Um, you know, you could disagree with, with the Ticketmaster stuff and you could disagree with their politics and you could disagree with other stands they've taken. But I think, you know, at least they, you know, and, and, and again, everyone likes to point out when, you know, the, Oh, the, Oh, they fly private jets, but they talk about the environment and, and I, I get all that. But, you know, they, they spend a lot of time, I think, thinking about, you know, stupid things like set lists. I mean, most bands basically photocopy the previous night's show and they'll cross out one or two songs. And, you know, they literally have shown on, you know, uh, different Pearl Jam videos and stuff. I mean, you know, Eddie will spend, you know, an hour or two hours sitting there making sure they play songs that they haven't played in that city before. They'll look up the previous concerts in Chicago and they'll say, oh, I've never played this song we should play that tonight and they'll work on it during their sound check and so for me i think you know for anyone that hasn't listened to them much lately or at all i would really 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 recommend if you can ever see them live to to go especially you know i know um they've been playing a lot more bigger shows lately like baseball stadiums and festivals and and so if you can get it get into one of those shows i think that is really the best way to listen to the music and to you know just to kind of see what all the fuss is about because it really is they they do a lot they don't they don't do a flashy show like you too but they they put a lot of effort into picking songs that they think will work that haven't been played in that city and i think that that's one of the the things about pearl jam that will i believe be something that the fans remember you know going forward just because you know they they put a lot of effort into it and i think that shows Political Beats, Scott Bertram, Jeff Blair, and Josh Jordan with us this week at Numbers Muncher on Twitter. Uh, he has uh, written for National Review and Forbes, specifically about political polling, talking about Pearl Jam. And we come to the uh, time of the episode each and every week where we turn to all three participants and ask for two albums from our band that everybody should own and five tracks from that band that everybody should hear. And we always start with our guest. Josh, the floor is yours. All right, so the album, they're both really tough, uh, especially once, you know, because they do have a lot of albums and songs. But, uh, you know, if I, it, it changes, but I, I think for, you know, going front to back, Versus and Yield are two albums where they don't have a lot of downtime, uh, whereas Vitalogy has some of the filler. No Code has a couple songs that are kind of, you know, disjointed from the album, I think. So those would be my two, even though I could go with those other two as well. Uh, for top five songs, I tried to pick songs that kind of, spanned through the career just because it's hard to pick five songs and these are five songs i've listened to a lot lately so and um rear view mirror from versus uh i think that song i've probably listened to ten thousand times since i was that teenager listening to it in my bedroom so, <laughs> yeah, so i mean I, yeah right <laughs> i mean i used to listen to that song so many times and um it was just it was that song and i remember you know getting the bootlegs and playing the bootleg you know versions of rearview mirror versus the studio and i played on my guitar and all that so that one's got to be number one uh corduroy is just i think it's got to be one of their best songs by all measures but that's definitely up there I 
Um, I know this one's going to hurt Jeff a bit, but I put release in there. Uh, <laughs> and, and, uh, and the reason with release is, you know, I was trying to think of my favorite song off of 10. And I don't know if I could pick like a favorite song offhand, but release is one of those songs where if you ever go to a show and they play that to open the show, it's just such a cool vibe to it. And it's such a cool feel and it just builds and builds and the crowd is just nuts. And so I think for me, it has a lot to do with the live shows um, as much as anything else. And then I put infallible up there off lightning bolt, which is just, I've listened to that so much since the album came out a couple of years ago. So figured that was worth a mention and then uh i mentioned it earlier but uh low light off of yield mm -hmm. for some reason i don't know what it is about that song i just love that song and it's it's not the most like you know it's not a lot it's not a fast song it's not a loud song it's just for some reason i just i, I listen to it i just kind of feel at ease for a few minutes and, and i don't know what it is about that song but i always just i don't know what it is it just makes me feel calm so i'm like yeah i'll go with that it's a good good top five i think <laughs> uh okay for uh me i i um actually agree with josh on the albums um like vitology an awful lot but as jeff pointed out half of it is stuff that you probably don't want to hear uh but the other half is brilliant <laughs> front to back if you only have to if you're only going to have two it's verses which is chock full of hits in songs you know uh and they still hold up well today and it's yield which is i think the most underrated pearl jam album and again front to back quality songs through the whole album a very collaborative spirit and collaborative effort with uh, everyone in the band contributing and especially uh gossard and, and mccready with with their music uh, on some of those songs so uh it's verses in yield five songs have been going back and forth a bit through the uh, through the show from verses let's take the first track go uh the way that album starts uh, the way that brendan o'brien's production is apparent from the very first track uh, Go is a great track. It might be the best one on Versus, so that's on my top five. I think we're all going to have Corduroy on the list. Uh, I, I do, too, from Vitalogy. It's just, uh, you know, Jeff explained earlier in the podcast why uh, what that middle eight section is just, you know, what rock and roll is. Corduroy is such a great song. Uh, from No Code, Off He Goes um, is on my list. Again, it's about a six-minute long song. It's a slower uh, song from from part of the rest of the album, but it, it is just such a direct song, such a gentle song, beautiful harmonies. Really like "Off He Goes." I think that's the key to that No Code album. "Faithful" from Yield is on my list. Uh, talked about that during the show, and I, I think the very last, uh, the last great song that Eddie Vedder wrote, both lyrics and music for "I Am Mine" from uh, Riot Act. Those are my top five. Jeff. Those are all really great choices. Uh, I'm going to be a little different than you guys, and I will take my first uh, key album as No Code. Uh, I recognize that it's flawed, that the second half of the album uh, is a little bit wonky. Uh, songs there didn't quite come off as well in the studio as they would live. Red Mosquito is a, a primary example of that, but I still love Lucan and uh, the present tense. But the first half of that album is the most exciting music uh, in some ways that Pearl Jam ever made. Certainly uh, some of their most daring and uh, uh, sort of you know left turn stuff out there. Uh, I love it to death. Uh, the second one I would say is Yield. And I think it's, again, very telling that all three of us are saying Yield is one of Pearl Jam's greatest albums, maybe their greatest album. Get Yield, people. It's fantastic. I would say that the last two songs are unnecessary. Everything up until that point is magnificent. It is great in every way. Five songs. Again, Scott, you were right. All three of us say Corduroy because Corduroy is one of the great rock songs 
of the 1990s. Boy, you could even put it in the conversation for all time. Off of No Code, I'll say In My Tree, which represents to me everything that makes No Code so bracingly different and great and uh, daring uh, for Pearl Jam. Just a, a fantastic song and a fantastic drum track by Jack Irons in particular. Faithful, uh, again, one that you pick, Scott, and uh, one that I completely agree with you. This is, uh, this is Pearl Jam as the masters of the mid-tempo ballad. Every single dynamic evolution in the song is completely earned and completely well thought out. Uh, by the time it ends... The absolute hurricane gale force sound that comes at you and then finally dies away into nothingness, into a, a quiet conclusion. Uh, it feels so perfectly considered that you just marvel at the fact that these guys know how to construct music in a way that few bands of their era ever really understood. In fact, I actually would compare them most to Radiohead, of all people, even though they worked in very different genres, in really understanding the effectiveness of how to put a song together and structure it. Uh, my fourth song is Light Years. This is a song that just uh, it hits me hard, hits me in a very personal place. It's a very emotional song, another one of those great mid-tempo ballads from Pearl Jam. Um, uh, and again, uh, when, when the, the chorus hits, especially after the guitar solo, uh, and you hear Eddie singing about uh, his friend who is gone and who he prays for and he knows is somewhere out there and the stars shining down on them, um, you know, I think you'll be moved too. I certainly hope you are. And then my last choice is Can't Keep, the opening song off of Riot Act. Riot Act is a, a mixed album in a lot of ways, but Can't Keep is one of their most impressive songs. Uh, a great, probably Matt Cameron's greatest performance on the drums. Uh, one of the most interesting sort of decorative guitar tracks ever provided by uh, Mike McCready or Stone Gossard. And uh, the song itself was written entirely by Vetter. And I just love the chord sequence that he brings to it. I'd also recommend if you get a chance, you can look it up on YouTube. Uh, uh, Vetter's solo version of that song on ukulele of all things. He's sitting <laughs> out on a rock in the middle of a Hawaiian island somewhere, and the waves are crashing down around him, and a, I guess a helicopter is flying by to videotape him as he's performing the song. It's just as good as the Pearl Jam version. It's a song that stands up on its own merits as a song, not even just as an incredible band performance, which it also is. This was a fantastic band, and it was a pleasure to discuss them today, guys. There you go. Political Beach takes on Pearl Jam. We uh, we thank our guest, Josh Jordan. Follow on Twitter, at Numbers Muncher. And again, uh, I don't know if you'll be writing anytime soon, but previously at National Review, <laughs> Forbes, about political polling, especially during election season. You never know when uh, someone might come calling for more Josh Jordan stuff. Josh, thank <laughs> you so much for joining us on the show today. <laughs> I'll be waiting by the phone on that one. <laughs> <laughs> I'll have Charlie give you a call. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, thank, thank you guys for having me on this. Is, but I mean, I, I feel bad. I, I could go on for days about Pearl Jam. So, but I'm so glad you guys uh, had me on for this. It's been a lot of fun. Yeah, it was hard to edit it down, but we, we managed to cover the whole career. <laughs> I think we did all right. Uh, yeah. Jeff Blair, my co-host, you can find him on Twitter, at EsotericCD. Again, I think we should do it again next week. Let's do, do I think show. we should. We may be British lager louds next week. We'll see. <laughs> uh, and my name is Scott Bertram. You can find me on Twitter, at Scott Bertram. And the show, we I always forget to mention the show. The show has a Twitter uh, handle as well, at political underscore beats, at political underscore beats. And you can uh, subscribe. Subscribe to our new episodes, Mondays, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn. Go to nationalreview.com, find all our old episodes there, and new ones on Mondays posted there with the lovingly handcrafted show notes 
from Jeff each and every Monday. Uh, this has been a presentation of National Review. This has been Political Beats.